have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. to find chaos and plenty of empty shells. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan, to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com. Or call 888-441. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, 
and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. Point out the colors. All right, and welcome back to another adventure here on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, Annie, and the show is Southern Sense. <laughs> if you didn't know, oh, welcome aboard. I want to welcome aboard also my co-host, the one, the only, who's going, what the heck is this woman doing today to me? Courtesy as Bennett. Courtesy, you never know what I'm going to start off with. You have no idea. <laughs> God bless you, son. God bless you. Hey, I appreciate that. I'm still trying to get over the um, disturbing um, Mueller show the other day. Uh, I can't believe how how weak that guy looked, and he was in head of a, a agency. Oh, oh no. Oh man. I- Oh, we're going to be talking to a bunch of our guests about that because we've got an absolutely fantastic lineup. You know, I, I got to apologize. I'm a little frazzled uh, besides the health issues I just have been recently overcoming in a couple of hospital stays I didn't need. I've got a house guest that is with us. I love him dearly, but sometimes you have a house guest. And no matter how much you're trying to accommodate them, you find them underneath your feet. <laughs> Oh man, and, and and you try to you try to be like, all right, fine. This is upsetting my normal routine. So how do I work around this? So <laughs> if I'm a little frazzled, it's because I am. Anyway, uh, starting to say we got ourselves a great lineup. I started reaching back into some of our guests we've had in the past, and good lord, I'm going on our tenth year doing this. And there's a ton of people that I keep on saying, I, I love having you on. Let's have you back again. And I never really, truly get back to them. So I started doing that. I started reaching out to some of our past guests. And one of them is uh, Charles Sam Faddis, who everyone knows him as Sam Faddis, uh, former CIA operations officer. Um, he's got a great online magazine called And, A-N-D, And Magazine, that he started with his wife, I think, just last year. And it's really a fantastic uh, uh, zine. We also have former Congressman Tom Tancredo. Um, you know him as the Colorado congressman who tried to run for governor in Colorado a couple of terms. He's now working with WeBuildTheWall.us. Uh, so we're going to have him on. Uh, he's going to be calling us, or actually we're going to be calling him, and he's down at we build no, the wall symposium. Let me get this correct. The wall symposium that's down in Texas right now. They're right on the border. They're having this fantastic uh, symposium on the wall. Uh, a whole bunch of great sponsors on that. So we're going to be talking to him about that. Followed by Jim Horn. Jim Horn worked for the State Department. He's also an expert on Islam. And someone shot me something today just up on Twitter. I'm going to bring up a lot of this on him as well as certain foreign Uh, issues that are going on, such as Iran and North Korea and China. A lot, a lot to talk about. We're also going to be talking about uh, the Mueller testimony. And also, calling in from the wall towards the very end of the show is Anna Polina. And people normally follow her up on Instagram or Facebook. She's also with WeBuildTheWall.us as uh, Turning Point USA. Uh, She's also with Ben Venuto. Uh, it's a 
nonpartisan, even though it leans Christian conservative, uh, to unite different communities to the American dream and to the Constitution, which is specific. She's going to be calling us from the wall symposium also. So we got a lot to talk about and a lot to do, Curtis. It's going to be a jam-packed oh, uh, show. Uh, if anyone is watching on the video and they're wondering why I am wearing an NYPD hat, it is to show solidarity to my brethren in blue over at NYPD. Uh, I retired back in 1996, uh, but still, once a cop, always a cop, and that's in the end. When I see what is going on in New York City and the attacks on these men and women who are out there to protect and serve, they volunteer. They're not drafted. They're not conscripted. These men and women choose to protect and serve these communities in New York City, and they're being attacked by the very people they are out there to serve. And the fact there's only three arrests in this latest round of attacks is despicable. And we are going to be calling on the commissioner of NYPD to resign. We're going to call on the ouster of Bill de Blasio as mayor of New York City, because under their reign, under their leadership, this has occurred. Now, I was a cop under David Dinkins, and we had a nickname for him. It was minus a man part, at which rhymes with Dinkins. And <laughs> even he would never have condoned the attacks on his men and women in blue. Even he, as weak as a mayor he was, and how we thought it was really hysterical. He actually was mayor of the city, thankfully for not very long, replaced by Rudy Giuliani, who did bring back pride to the NYPD and to New York City. Um, to see this happen, it, I mean, my heart goes out to these men and women. And God bless them for having the courage to have the restraint. You have no idea how much courage it takes when you are assaulted in that position and to hold your tongue and to not go after the people. I mean, if it was me back then, <laughs> Lord, thank God they didn't have a lot of video cameras or phone cameras back then. <laughs> oh, man. Mm. Uh, but I, I, I commend them for the restraint they have because they're following orders. Someone up above told them, if you're hit with water, don't react which has only encouraged these people on the street to do this. And what is even worse, Curtis, is they're involving little kids. They're teaching little kids that respect for the law, respect for your fellow human being. It's not necessary. Go ahead. Well, that's do what they do on the left. Is good to you. There's no consequences for your actions. They're teaching these kids lawlessness. I'm having an early well, look at <laughs> Look at what happened in Baltimore that time when the mayor said, just just let them have at it, you know. And the town just went to um, a state of anarchy. Police Absolutely. refused to go in. Well, actually, they were ordered to stand down. Absolutely. Uh, but we've got to get this moving along because I know my rant has just taken up a large chunk of the show. Because those that listen to this show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And I know we're running out of time before our first guest calls in, so uh, let's bring this along. Our dedication is going to go out to police officer Nathan Hayden, 
Heidelberg of the Midland Police Department out of Texas. His end of watch was Tuesday, March 5th of 2019. And this is from Defense Maven. It reads, Midland Police Officer Nathan Hayden Heidelberg was killed in the line of duty on Tuesday, March 5th of 2019, when he was shot by a homeowner when responding to a burglar alarm. The incident took place at approximately 1.16 a.m. when Officer Heidelberg, 28, and Officer Victoria Ali responded to the 330 block of Eagle Cove to re- for a report of a burglary alarm, reported the Midland Reporter Telegram. Officer Ali is currently a probationary officer, and Officer Heidelberg was her field training officer. When they arrived, the officers circled the outside of the residence on foot and found nothing unusual according to court documents. That's when Officer Heidelberg realized the front door of the home was not secured and dispatched notification. Two other officers arrived at the scene just in time to hear Officer Heidelberg's announced Midland Police Department. Court documents read. Suddenly, a gunshot rang out. One officer asked the other three if they were all right, and everyone responded that they were. He said he then heard a noise and saw Officer Heidelberg lying face down on the ground. Realizing that Officer Heidelberg had been shot just above the vest, the assisting officer attempted to deliver life-saving care before the wounded officer was rushed to Midland Memorial Hospital. Officer Heidelberg succumbed to his gunshot wound at approximately 2.20 a.m., a little more than an hour later. The homeowner, later identified as David Charles Wilson, later admitted he fired a handgun in the direction of Officer Heidelberg from inside the home. His arrest affidavit read, according to an internal department email, Wilson said he had thought someone was breaking into his home, so he fired towards the illuminated flashlight Officer Heidelberg was holding. Wilson was then charged with second-degree manslaughter and was released on bail on $75,000 bond. We would like to express our deepest sympathies to Officer Heidelberg's family and the Midland Police Department for the events that led to his death, Wilson's attorney, Brian Carney, told KOSA. David Wilson believed that his family was experiencing a home invasion and only fired his weapon to protect his family. The Texas Rangers are handling the ongoing investigation into Officer Heidelberg's death. Midland Police Department Deputy Chief Michael Hendrick said that the past 24 hours have been a nightmare for his department. Words can't describe how painful it is to lose a friend, lose a colleague, lose one of your subordinates, one of your employees, Chief Hendrick said. You train with these guys. You eat with these guys. You pray with these guys. You know their families. We're in mourning. It's very painful. It shocks it right through the bone, through the core of our system, he added. Officer Heidelberg was a five-year veteran of the MPD. He represented the best of all of us, Midland Police Chief Seth Herman said. He was courageous, selfless, ethical, and professional. Nathan treated each other with others with respect regardless of their demeanor or actions. He was a tireless public servant who devoted every ounce of energy to his profession. 
the citizens and his fellow officers, Chief Kerman continued, we have lost not only a great officer, but a loving brother and the most positive example of what we all should aspire to be. I wish I was more like Nathan. From OAOA.com by Mark Rogers. Hundreds gathered at First Baptist Church in Midland to remember Midland Police Department Field Officer Nathan Hyden Heidelberg, while thousands lined the street to show their respects to the slain officer. Heidelberg died at Memorial Hospital after being shot while on duty. He was a field training officer, had been employed with MPD for five years. He was born and raised in Midland. He graduated from Midland High, Midland College, and Sewell Ross State University and graduated the police academy in 2014. Services featured a bagpiper, as well as hundreds in attendance, including a sea of law enforcement officers from a number of agencies. Dr. Darren Wood, First Baptist senior pastor, called him a great friend and extolled his patience and integrity. He said Heidelberg was in the local band Ricky and the Rhinestones and loved being a police officer and serving the community. Family was important to the late officer, he said. Today, we gather to honor the life of Officer Heidelberg, the minister said. He had a well-lived life, even if far shorter than planned or hoped for. Police chaplain Mark Detman talked about meeting Heidelberg. I watched them grow and progress through their careers. He said he was always kind and raised right, and said the most important thing he noticed about him was that he loved being a police officer. He loved what he was doing, Dittman said. I know his faith. I know his heart. And I know his love for Jesus. And I know where Nathan is today. Dittman said he hopes that faith offered comfort to his family, co-workers, and friends. MPD Chief Seth Herman talked about meeting Heidelberg while the chief was an instructor at the academy, and Heidelberg was a cadet. He represented the best of all of us, he said through tears. He treated others with respect. Herman said that the MPD lost not only a great officer, but the most positive example of what we should all aspire to be. Herman, in dress blues, gave a sometimes humorous but emotional testimony about the officer and talked about wishing he was more poetic and that he had better words for his eulogy. What drew me was the infectious smile he had every moment of every single day, the chief said. He was the most respectful young man I believe I have ever met. He joked a bit and talked about the late Heidelberg and his work ethic and how he was well-liked in the department. As much as I try, I will never be as good a man as Haydn, Herman said. He was a warrior in every sense of the word. I truly wish I could be more like Haydn. I can give you no comfort in this time of sorrow. He ended by telling a sea of law enforcement officers that God only takes the best. The Medal of Valor was bestowed upon Heidelberg toward the end of just over an hour's service by Herman for his actions and the man he was. I present the Medal of Honor to Nathan Hayden Heidelberg, Herman said. He then presented the medal to Heidelberg's parents. 
The service ended with the dispatcher radio call. 3348, Officer Heidelberg. You have answered your last call. End of watch. March 5, 2019 at 2.12 a.m. To the sobs of the churchgoers. Flowers draped in blue ribbon and law enforcement flags were scattered around the casket that was draped in an American flag at the church. An MPD vehicle parked outside the church was covered with flowers dropped by the Midlanders. Many respects were paid to the late officer all over Midland. Dozens of vehicles from a number of law enforcement agencies escorted his body, while thousands lined the streets waving both American and Blue Line police flags. Honor guards and law enforcement escorted the body all the way back from Fort Worth, with many overpasses and bridges featuring local fire departments hanging American flags in respect. Law enforcement agencies from around the area and state, including the Ector County Sheriff's Office and the Odessa Police Department, offered to patrol Midland while members of the MPD attended the funeral. In a Facebook post, Midland Mayor Jerry Morales asked for flags to be flown at half-staff in remembrance of Officer Heidelberg and all those falling in the line of duty. Our Midland families need to stand strong and lift each other up during this time of mourning, he wrote. Please give your support and thanks to all of our public service for all they do to protect our great city. This is a tragic loss for our community. Our thoughts and prayers are with the family of the Midland Police Officer Heidelberg, both blue and blood. Thank you for your service. Officer Nathan Heidelberg, your life mattered. Today's show is dedicated to Officer Heidelberg, but is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders. Me, they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. And we also dedicate to the show all the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this wonderful great nation through today and into its fantastic future. We can never say thank you enough and God bless each and every one of them. We dedicate this song, Amazing Grace.
Correctly, and we're back. You're here listening to Southern Sense live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the southern hyphen sense and dot com. Uh, we're waiting for our first guest to call in, but I understand uh, we are having a uh, problem with the phone lines. So let's hope that uh, our guest, Sam Fattis, will be able to call in. Otherwise, we're going to do it on a wing and a prayer. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, okay. We're good for oh, that. Uh, yeah, uh, there were some questions about our, our dedication. Some people came in a little late on the dedication. I apologize. I was crying, so if you see me wiping my nose, I still might be crying on this one. It was a very tragic uh, incident. Uh, the officer was training a, a rookie, had someone straight out of the police academy, and they did everything properly. Uh, they get the call for a burglary. They actually did a perimeter check, which is the very first thing whenever you get any sort of a burglary or even a robbery call. You do a perimeter walk around just to check the doors the windows and everything else and when he came back around to the front of the house that is when they noticed the front door was open so it is very possible there was an attempted burglary and the burglar had fled the homeowner was unaware of that he may have heard a noise and heard something around the perimeter of the house and which may have been the officers themselves doing the check and as he approached the front door realizing it was open he announced midland police department the first thing you say before you enter into a, a, a building you don't know and you don't know if you're confronting a burglar or a robber or whatever, you announce your presence vocally and loudly. And he did everything by the book. And unfortunately, he was hit above his vest and he did not survive. It is very frightening to both the officer and to the homeowner. Um, but it just shows the dangers of the job. And unfortunately, this homeowner is being charged um, I I don't see him facing any I, – I really honestly don't think anything personally should come to the homeowner. It is a tragic accident, and the homeowner had the right to protect himself. Um, I think they went a little far on arresting him, uh, honestly, but uh, that's Texas, and that's the way it is, and it, it was an accident. Anyway, we've got a lot to talk about. As I said, we're waiting for Sam to uh, call in. I just shot him an email. Hopefully, he'll be able to uh, respond. I don't think I have him on my uh, – oh, come on. My phone is just misbehaving. Um, but it is possible that Sam calling in at this moment. Let's double-check. And if the computer behaves and brings us our guest on – Oh, here we go. Is this Sam? It is. 
Sam. Good afternoon. Our guest is Sam Faddis. Uh, you know him as Charles Sam Faddis. Good afternoon. Uh, he is the founder and editor of a great magazine. Is it a year or two years old? And magazine, A-N-D magazine. I, I'm losing track of time, Sam. Probably about a year since we took it over. Ah, well, how is it going? Uh, it's going very well. We've got a lot of uh, really interesting people writing for us, and we're you know, we're trying something new with Ann Magazine. We actually rely on facts and uh, reason to make our <laughs> points. I, I know it's not in vogue, but, uh, you know, we're just uh, kind of radicals. <laughs> that is just too funny. I love that. I absolutely, we rely on facts. Do you hear that, Lane Street Media? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, I got to tell you, it looks like we are successfully broadcasting up on Facebook and YouTube. So anyone watching sees I am wearing my NYPD hat in solidarity to my uh, fellow brother and in blue uh, being attacked on the streets in Manhattan. This is crazy, Sam. Did you ever think you would live to see uh, when uh, police officers would come under such an attack? And so blatantly, and what really gets me, today's age of social media, these idiots videotape themselves doing it. So what do you think? Eventually they're going to get busted. What is the mentality out there? Well, obviously we're talking about uh, an issue with IQ points, but, um, you know, it's sad. It's, I mean, all kidding aside, and it's particularly sad, I think, I mean, sad for law enforcement anywhere. But when you think about um, there was a time a few decades ago when, you know, that we were talking about basically New York City was uninhabitable. Crime was so out of control and really uh, you know, law enforcement spearheaded an effort to really take that city back and make it, particularly relative to other major cities, incredibly safe, you know, so that people really have flocked back into the city. And now you see us sliding back down the slope to the same place where law enforcement is vilified. And once again, you're just going to have the streets out of control. Very, very sad. You know, the, the, the saddest part is, is I was part of that group of cops that came in under Mayor David Dinkins. And we had a, a, a name. Uh, it was minus a male uh, piece of your organ there. Uh, we, that's what we call the mayor whatever list. Uh, but right. even under him, this would not have gone on. You know, we were glad to see him go, glad to see Giuliani came in, even though Giuliani gave us a heck of a hard time with our contracts, uh, which <laughs> sometimes put us like, we love him, we hate him. Uh, but we were part of that crowd because I remember back in, oh, good Lord, 1987, <laughs> and I'm dating myself here, uh, being sent over to areas of Brooklyn that were still burnt out shells from the 1977 blackout and riots. And I'm sure you remember that era back in 77 when it was just completely lawless. We had the huge uh, blackout that covered all of Manhattan and areas of Brooklyn and the Bronx. Uh, and it just was wild still day. Let's go shopping for the nearest, you know, sneakers and TVs and, you know, whole neighborhoods were decimated that even a decade later had not been rebuilt. Yeah, well, and that kind of thing has happened in, in a number of cities with impact. I mean, New York, um, maybe because it's, 
you know, it's unique amongst American cities in terms of size, size and significance was largely able to recover from, from much of that. But, you know, you can look at areas of Baltimore and Maryland where big chunks of the city just simply have never recovered. Entire communities left the city and they never came back in areas that once were very prosperous and generations of people had been there running businesses and so forth have just become, you know, I mean, they're war zones. So the murder rate is off the charts and every other house is abandoned. Um, literally, the city has never recovered. I mean, you just still, you know, actually, it's just continued to get worse year after year after year. And so how so how vilifying law enforcement and, and making it impossible for them to do their job helps anybody, I, I don't know. But it seems to me that the people yeah. who are most who are most champion this stuff are the kind of folks who don't actually live in the areas that they're talking about, you know. No, and you, you'll notice two things. These urban areas are controlled by very liberal Democrats, number one. And number two, when they go on these sprees, these attacks against police officers or businesses, they attack the very neighborhoods that they live in, the people that own the corner bodega is your aunt, your uncle, even maybe your parents that you're attacking. You know, they're destroying the very neighborhood they live in. But they get these outside agitators to come in and say, hey, listen, we'll pay you $15 an hour if you riot with us. And then they disappear. They don't care like Occupy did. And we know we can trace it to Craigslist. A lot of these ads for people to come into these neighborhoods to agitate and they leave. But you're stuck living in that very neighborhood that you just helped decimate. The logic defies me. Yeah, I mean, I, if you look, if you're talking about NYPD, right? Uh, the the majority of the officers on the force by this point are minority, whatever exactly that means. But they're they're not the stereotypical white males that everybody wants to throw stones at and overwhelmingly they live in the city so and have grown up in the city right and so they they're out there taking care of their town and keeping it safe for folks to to live in and make a living in and all that stuff and then just get attacked with these just insane allegations you know guys the, the standard line that they're sort of gunning down everybody and everybody and anybody of color in the streets. And, you know, what you're talking about is a couple of Hispanic or black officers who were actually just doing their job and, um, and at great personal risk. And by the way, not getting rich while they're doing it. And what they get in return is just slandered and abused. Well, you know, to give an insight, being former NYPD, I can tell you for a fact that at the time I went in, uh, they were heavily recruiting minorities. Uh, the fact that I was a female was a major plus because at that point in time in the 80s, less than 10 percent of the overall police force, and you're talking about 35,000 officers, were female. And most of them were not on the street. They would be in administrative positions uh, because the idea was that women were not just as good. Uh, when I got there on my first roll call, they began to pair me up with an old-timer. And the old-timer goes, I ain't riding with no female. 
uh, that would, and you're thinking in the 80s, you'd probably be, you know, these guys would not be so uh, bigoted in this area. They would be more educated. But no, that was the attitude that you got. Um, but they did a heavy recruitment for minorities, which increased through the 90s and into the new millennia. So there was an overturn of, of people because they used to go out to the suburbs like Westchester, Nassau, Suffolk, and go out there recruiting because, you know, you had a more conservative type of in- individual. Now they wanted a more liberal-minded individual as a police officer. Uh, less law enforcement and more social services is the direction NYPD went. It doesn't mean the officers in particular or the officers' union agreed with that approach, which I do not agree. You have to be a social services person at one point, but there is a line that gets drawn where law must be obeyed. And what is happening to these officers, they have been pushed to the point where they are nothing more than babysitters, and they're not allowed to do their job. They are handcuffed. And this is the mentality you find in a liberal democratic community. Look at Chicago was a perfect example and New York is becoming another Chicago. Yeah. And and, and it's just and, and as with so many of these kinds of things, facts don't really seem to have any bearing on it. I you know, I was talking to a good friend who actually is counsel for NYPD, so she represents the the cops when they're sued. Um, and so all day, every day she's dealing with these accusations and there was an article in one of the New York papers, this is a few months ago, talking about drug cops and something to the effect of uh, they're out of control and the average person working narcotics and NYPD has, I don't know, 177 complaints lodged against them for, you know, um, in regard to illegal searches. And um, so the article was written in this way that there's this horrifying number and to give this suggestion that the cops are on a rampage and just kicking in doors right and left. And, and what this attorney said was, okay, so the deal is that the average narcotics cop is actually serving about 177 warrants a year. And every single time they seize drugs, somebody files a complaint. So when you tell me oh, yeah. that a drug cop has 177 complaints against them, all that tells me is that they're an average cop doing an average amount of work in NYPD. It means it is a completely meaningless statistic. And completely absent from the story was any evidence regarding how many of these complaints were ever found to be valid. It was presented as because someone had made a complaint, therefore something must have been done wrong. And in fact, overwhelmingly, mm-hmm. as you well know, virtually never are any of these complaints found to be valid. Uh, but that was completely no. omitted from the story. So the story was deliberately written oh. as cops have run amok. Exactly. And I used to have a training officer, a sergeant, who said if you don't get a complaint, then you're not doing your job. Knowing at that time in the 80s that someone is going to file a complaint the moment you make an arrest, the moment you write a ticket. And uh, the funniest incident I had was I stopped a woman. She happened to have been a school teacher, a local public school teacher, racing because she was late to work. And so she blows a light in front of me. So I pull her over. And she was a, shall I say it politely, a very ample woman. And when I asked her for her identification or license or registration, she gave me a hard time. And I says, ma'am, please, you ran a red light. 
you know, uh, need to verify the vehicle and, and your identity. So she finally hands the information over to me, and she's just up one side, but reading the other side. And I was like, you're late for school, right? And she says, I'm going to let you go with just a warning. And I'm trying to hand her her documents back to her, and she's refusing to take them. She says, ma'am, I'm letting you go. Please leave it at that. And since she wouldn't take the papers, I just tossed them through the open window. Her driver's license fell on one boob. The other (laughs) registration fell on the other one. I mean, perfect landing. I mean, you couldn't have planned this if you tried. So consequently, I get called in to uh, internal affairs. And I'm being said there was a complaint registered against me. And he cites this one situation. So I explain it to him what exactly happened. He goes, officer, next time you have an individual like that, Write them the ticket. <laughs> from now on. <laughs> from now on. What you get for I'm trying to be a nice person, right? Today, but imagine an officer going through that very same situation today. Oh, my goodness. They'd be hauled off in chains. And what these men yeah, and women probably, are going through. Probably. I, yep. It's terrible. Did I lose you? Okay, I'm back. Block Talk Radio kicked me out. <laughs> and it looks like Sam was kicked out, too. Uh, we, right, we were, Sam, we, the, the powers to be, yes, I'm here. The powers to be decided we couldn't continue our conversation. We were censored. <laughs> the trolls. <laughs> the trolls have found yep. us out. <laughs> Blame it on Google. Oh, man, you, <laughs> you can't make this up. You cannot make this up. Listen, um, we're talking about you know the, the domestic terrorism. One of the uh, things that you uh, address in your your magazine and magazine, which people can find at andandmagazine.com. And of course, you know, Sam, I'm always nice to you. I put the link up on the show page so people listening to the podcast can just click on it and get into your magazine, and they can also subscribe so they get your emails. You address the issue of Antifa, and. Uh, This is an unusual phenomenon that started with Occupy, and now it's morphed into Antifa. Tell me Occupy and Antifa are not related. Um, You now have a paid terrorist group, you know, backed by individuals, which I suspect being someone like George Soros, um, instigating civil unrest. Why isn't it listed as a terrorist group? Yeah, well, it, it absolutely should be, and there has been legislation introduced at the federal level to have it declared that. We'll see where it goes. Um, the most recent thing I wrote about was trying to focus in on this attack that happened out in Washington State with this guy that showed up at this um, ICE facility with a rifle and some incendiary devices and successfully set on fire one vehicle and then was eventually killed while he was apparently attempting to blow up the big propane tank next to the 
building, which strange, I mean, would have killed a bunch of people, most of whom probably would have been the illegals held inside that he theoretically was fighting on behalf of. But what fascinates me, I mean, in a horrible way, is the way this has been treated on the web by uh, sites that are Antifa sites, because they have... um, they have taken complete ownership of this. They didn't make any attempt whatsoever to distance themselves, to say, you know, um, we're for resistance but never violence. There, there was no such verbiage. They, they owned it. They lionized him, specifically referred to him as a martyr who had died in the service of the cause. He published, he, he wrote a whole manifesto. Um, before he got killed. I guess you have to do that before you do something horrible. And um, they published that entire thing and endorsed every word in it. And it's an explicit call to violent action. So uh, it's really, really, really disturbing because it's not, you know, what what he's saying in his manifesto is basically I'm the first of many and uh, I just, my only regret is I won't live to see the success of the revolution. And Antifa completely owned it and endorsed it. So, you know, they are encouraging this kind of thing to happen all across the country. Well, you know, someone just posted a question, which I put aside last night when I was doing my notes. And I've actually asked myself this very same question many times since the rise of Antifa, because you notice the, the uniforms they wear. The, the dark clothing, the mask, they are reminiscent of what the Islamists, the ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, what they use, what they do when they go and riot in the streets. And so my question to you is, do you think that possibly they are being infiltrated and they are being encouraged by the enemies of the United States to do these riots, maybe even financed in some areas? Well, I'm not going to discount anything. If so, I haven't seen that evidence. But but I tell you what, this is another thing that I point out in the article. The the way they have talked about, in particular, I'm using the guy in Tacoma. I think it was Tacoma as an example. It's by no means the only violent act associated with them. The way they talk about him and everything about everything they've written is eerily reminiscent of exactly the kind of groups that you're talking about. I mean, Hezbollah is famous for parading its fighters in caskets through the streets with people chanting. All these groups refer to the folks that die doing horrible things as martyrs in service of the cause. That's exactly the way uh, Antifa and other, I mean, that's Antifa is kind of a loose confederation of groups, all of these associated groups, the way they're all talking about this. So in my mind, there's no question whatsoever that we are talking about domestic terrorism. And as I wrote in the piece, you know, a week or two ago, this is, <laughs> this is the beginning. This is not the end. This is not something that happened, case closed, let's move on. Everything they're doing is to encourage this to become 
ever more frequent and ever uh, more violent. So if we don't clamp down on them, um, you know, the next thing is going to be much more horrific than a guy burning a vehicle and trying to blow up a propane tank and and, and getting stopped at that stage. I mean, the next thing is going to happen is you are actually going to have a mass casualty event there. And or they're going to start explicitly assassinating law enforcement officials and ICE officers and that kind of thing. There was there's absolutely not one word in anything of their reaction to this suggesting that they are distancing themselves from violence. Absolutely no contrary. They, they are no, celebrating no. this guy. Absolutely. You know, having lived like you through the 60s and 70s and, and watching the rise of people like Bernadine Dorans and Bill Ayers and the attacks and the bombings and the attacks on police officers, public buildings and the people that were killed from it. And that was horrific back then, which took law enforcement a hard clampdown on that to bring it into uh, control. But now we're dealing with a whole new animal here. Because we have the rise of social networks, and we have the rise of kooks that are giving uh, credence, uh, such as this transgender activist calling for more domestic and terrorist attacks and Trump's assassination. This is on social media. This transgender, she calls herself, I'm going to say she, calls herself Christopher Sazebo. And she has a video titled, Important Message to Leftists in memory of Will Van Spornson, which he urges people to do similar attacks uh, using <laughs> on, on migrant detention areas, using AR-15s and bombs and everything else, encouraging violence. And yet, why isn't this person in custody being questioned for inciting riots and violence? Why aren't we doing We have them on there saying this, and yet law enforcement's doing nothing. Intellig- what about intelligence? Much less infiltrating Antifa and these other organizations to find out who it is so we can go after the leaders. Where is this work being done? Yeah, well, it's not being done. And, and the, you, you know, you're making an excellent point, which is, I mean, the broader climate here of rhetoric is also very disturbing because everything about it even even rhetoric by people who who maybe okay they're not directly involved in the staging of violent acts, but many of them their rhetoric is highly encouraging. I mean we have these the famous four congresswomen you know the squad. Um, <laughs> at least at least three of them were asked after the attack in Washington State uh, explicitly because they're, they've been taking such a hostile tone and, and said so many things about ICE and want to abolish ICE and ICE consists of nothing but Nazis, et cetera. So they were all asked directly to comment. Now, you could – very easy for AOC to stop and say, uh, I hate Donald Trump and I still think ICE should be abolished, but – we can never condone violence. That would take about five seconds, and uh, it may or may not be sincere, but one would expect that of an elected official, and yet all of them pointedly have refused to make any comment whatsoever. They, they can't even see their way clear to say that trying to blow up a building and kill people is bad. 
So it, that you know, if that's the atmosphere we have sitting Congresswomen who can't find their way to condemn domestic terrorism, then we have a big problem. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think we're doing much about it. And I suspect, unfortunately, that you're going to see it get a lot worse before it gets better. The, the guys that they, when I first cut my teeth in counterterrorism, the first groups that I, I mean, I was working against Palestinian groups as well back in the day, but the first groups that I cut my teeth on were uh, European uh, left-wing Marxist-Leninist groups, you know, the Red Brigades and Red Army Faction yeah. 17 November. And these guys remind me very much of them, and that's very scary because I think in the days of Al-Qaeda, we've kind of forgotten about the existence of those groups. But those groups were highly organized and very, very, very lethal. Uh, to this day, when I teach counterterrorism tactics, many of the examples I use when I'm teaching in intelligence law enforcement come from that period because if you really want to see precision and professionalism and those are sick terms to use in reference to doing evil things but if you really want to see guys who are doing very very bad things but doing it exceptionally well if that makes sense uh look at the stuff that that those groups did they were capable of penetrating the the toughest security on the planet and killing very very senior officials Sam, Absolutely. And what I just want to point out, well, Curtis, just a second. I just want to point out that uh, the link between right. those Red Brigades, uh, September 13th, and all the other groups that we do know through, and I'm sure you can confirm this, that they did cross train with Hezma, Hamas, Hezbollah, and other Islamic extremist groups. So they they networked in a manner in which. We were never really fully able to to penetrate, and they may still be underground working with them. And my question brings back to Antifa: How much is this now affecting what's going on here in the United States? And then Curtis, jump in after Sam answers this. Thanks. Well, again, I mean, the short answer is I don't know because I'm unaware of I'm unaware of intelligence that says that. But as I used to always say in the field, the absence of intelligence is not intelligence, right? <laughs> The fact that we don't know doesn't mean it's not happening, right? But sometimes Washington will be like, well, we don't have a report that says that that's happening, so therefore it must mean that it's not happening. And my response would be, well, or else we just don't have very good intelligence or not collecting enough information. <laughs> I mean, we didn't have it. Let's put it this way. We didn't have a whole lot of intelligence telling us that almost 3,000 Americans were going to be killed on September 11, 2001. That didn't stop that from being real. So um, I, I, I suspect that, frankly, we're just not collecting much in the way of intelligence is because I suspect most law enforcement and, and the FBI are terrified of being accused of doing something nefarious penetrating these groups. Well, I'm going to follow up with another question after Curtis asked this. Go ahead, Curtis. <laughs> Curtis threw me yeah, off for a second on. because for a sec I didn't know he was on the call, and I thought you'd changed your voice dramatically when I first started. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's my co-host. By the way, by the way, Sam, you've got a Hi, you've there. got a long way to catch up with <laughs> Curtis because Curtis now has twenty four books published, one possibly being made into a movie. So you got a long way to catch up to him. <laughs> Go ahead, Curtis. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, based based on your experience um, in intelligence and. 
and all those other um, things that come with your expertise. What do you think is the greatest threat to America today? Islamic terrorists, China, or the Democrat Party? Well, I think the greatest long-term, I mean, if you're talking really at a strategic level, I would say that the Chinese are our our greatest national security threat. Um, What do I think about the Democratic Party? I think the Democratic Party is in the process of committing suicide. I mean, they apparently decided to run against Donald Trump on a platform where the choice is going to be vote for communism or vote for Donald Trump. And a big chunk of the country will vote for Donald Trump no matter what, and a big chunk of the country wouldn't vote for Donald Trump if he cured cancer tomorrow. And then there'll be a whole bunch of people in the middle who will walk into the voting booth and say, I still wish somebody would shut down Donald's Twitter account, but I'm not voting for a communist. I'm not voting for free health care, and I'm not voting for a universal basic, and, and I'm not voting for open borders. And I think Nancy Pelosi knows that, which is why she's desperately trying to get the squad under control, but unsuccessfully. Uh, that's what I think. Well, you know, I was I was going to ask, you know, what was I following up the question with? Oh, geez, now I just had a major brain fart. Thanks, Curtis. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you think yeah, Islamic you know, terrorists are still? Do you still think Islamic terrorists are a threat to us? I absolutely, I, I, I absolutely think Islamic terrorists are are a threat to us. I don't think, you know, I end up talking about Islamic terrorism all the time, and. You know, basically what I say is, and, and I make a distinction here between being at war with Islamic terrorism and being at war with Islam. We are at war, I think that's an accurate phrase because it conveys the magnitude of the task with Islamic terrorism. I think we will be in this war for as far into the future as you can see. So we just ought to accept the fact that this is not like we're going to win next year or three years from now. You're just going to be fighting this one way or the other for a very long time. And I think it's just going to shape shift all over the planet, everywhere. The world is filled with countries that are coming apart at the seams, you know, failing states and ungoverned spaces, and that terrorism will constantly be cropping up in those places. The number one thing that scares me about the threat from Islamic terrorism is the possible nexus between Islamic terrorism and weapons of mass destruction. Because it's just not... I mean, ISIS routinely uses chemical weapons, right? They do that all the time. The only reason they don't do it on a bigger scale is simply they still have more success killing people in large numbers with conventional explosives than they do with chemical weapons. If they ever get to the point where chemicals are actually more lethal for them, then that'll be horrifying. But we could see, I mean, there's no, there's no great scientific gap between where we are now and a biological terror attack. There's no, nuclear weapons have been around for whatever it is now, 75 years. Um, a whole bunch of countries have them, including places like North Korea, the Pakistanis are building them faster than any country on Earth. The line between all of those weapons being in the control of nation states and one of them being handed over to a terrorist group becomes
comes to dinner and dinner and dinner every day. I mean, all it would take would be a couple of senior officers in the Pakistani military with Islamic leanings to hand ISIS or Al-Qaeda a functioning nuclear device tomorrow. And I don't think anybody who knows anything about the problem could say that's inconceivable. That's entirely possible any day. So, like, you just start looking at the fact that you have this persistent threat. They think in apocalyptic terms. They really believe this is Armageddon, their version. And, you know, how long can we go before one of them manages to weaponize the pled or actually gets its hands on a functioning nuke? And then we would go from where we are now, suicide attacks were fine enough, to events that truly can kill a city and kill tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. So, yeah, I worry. I mean, if you ask me to list all the things I worry about, that'll be a very long list. So <laughs> I'm saying China <laughs> was, the number, was the number one strategic threat. That wasn't meant to minimize the fact that there are lots of other dangers out well, you know, before I go on to my next question, I want to mention to the people that are watching on the video and Facebook and uh, YouTube, if they notice there's something strange behind me, because normally they see the bookcase with all my authors, such as yourself, Sam, uh, sitting on that bookshelf, I put up a poster I carried uh, about a month, month and a half ago up in Orangeburg, South Carolina, when Mayor Bill de Blasio came to visit to uh, try to... Uh, jam up some black voters for his campaign. So I'm going to just scoot out of the screen for just bear with me for a second so people can look at the the poster I carried. Uh, Hang on a second. It says, we say no to de Blasio. (laughs) And that was my own creation. (laughs) But my next question goes into, uh, again, New York City. I just can't seem to get myself out of there today. Uh, about the power outage they recently had. And when I saw the outage go out, and I was there when power outages go out, and you'd have them like in a small block area. You never had anything as massive as this, especially after what happened in 1977, the way that Con Ed had everything come down on them to revamp their power grid. Um, To see this type of an attack... And they're saying, well, it may have gone back to this one transformer, this one link. And yet when you look at that specific link, there's no evidence of anything having caught fire there. I bring the question back as to now we're worrying about Islamics, uh, Islamist or ISIS or Al-Qaeda or whatever attacking us using Antifa. What about now Russia hacking into our power grids? We believe that they already have the ability to shut off the power of, of course, our nation already. Yeah, so, and and this is another one of these things that, um, you know, this is this is the kind of, um, we're talking about a thought process here that I think illustrates something that uh, I struggled with all throughout my career, which was, you try to get people to focus on threats and and prepare for attacks that have not yet happened. And you find this persistent mentality in the bureaucracy, if that's the right term, that, well, that's never happened, so we don't think it's going to happen. You know, which would lead me periodically to say, I guess I'm confused about the purpose of intelligence. 
Because if we're only going to protect ourselves against attacks that have already happened, then why are we wasting all this money on intel collection? Just wait till they kill a bunch of people one way and then protect yourself and don't let them do it again. We could save billions of dollars in a lot of time. I thought the purpose of intelligence was to give you foresight and warning and allow you to prevent attacks from ever occurring in the first place. And you, you just constantly fight this mindset. So on the power grid, the evidence, uh, first of all, the Russians have protected, perfected uh, what they generally refer to as hybrid warfare, which is a combination of special forces actions and sabotage and all sorts of other things that they've used against a whole host of former Soviet republics, the Georgians, the Ukrainians, the Lithuanians, etc. And a big portion of that has been for years now, decades now, cyber warfare, um, starting with some fairly straightforward basically denial of service requests, but I mean attacks, but still very effective, and then progressing from there to much more sophisticated attacks. And the documentation on their capability to attack our systems in a whole variety of ways and and is massive. That's known. And it's also known that they have not just thought about it and planned for it, but they have done they have hacked their way into power plants. They've hacked their way into the New York Stock Exchange. They've hacked their way into all kinds of things. And this is not just a matter of being able to delete data or you won't be able to get money out of the ATM one morning. Um, literally taking this to the level of being able to cause physical damage to power plants and and, and, and the electrical grid and so forth. So. You know, does that mean that the Russians were behind this blackout? I can't prove that. What it does mean is that you ought to be very seriously considering that possibility that, um, you know, they, they're not just sitting back thinking one of these days if we have a problem with the Americans, we'll figure out how to do this. They're kind of like the Iranians. They're constantly preparing. They're, they have plans sitting on the shelf and capabilities that have been exercised. So it's something we absolutely – uh, ought to be very, very concerned about. You know, what scared me is uh, under the Obama administration, we kept on hearing about uniting the power grid because you'd have blackouts in certain areas across the country under his administration. And they kept on saying, well, we need to have control in one place for the power grids. And I kept on screaming, you idiot. You want to decentralize. And as I see, you wrote, was it you that wrote this article? Uh, about the New York City power no. outage, just a test. It was on our magazine with another one of our writers, yes. Yeah, it was a very great article. And uh, he mentioned in there about some of these companies going back to retro, going back to old school, so that you're off the Internet. You're not, you won't be able to be hacked. The only way you can then affect the power grid is that if you're actually at the plant, at the, the nerve center where you can do harm, which is harder to do than to sit halfway across the globe at a computer and hacking into it. And I, I said this years ago, that this is the way we should be looking if we're worrying about outside attacks against our power system. So if you take out, say, a power plant, my next county over, it's not going to affect me because we're not intertwined. Make them all independent like they were originally meant to be. But you don't hear that anymore. You keep on hearing people, let's unite it so we have control in a central area. I think it's the dumbest thing possible. 
Well, it, yeah, and, and part of this is um, ignorance and just being, you know, being willfully ignorant. And part of it becomes like everything else, I guess, with big government and sometimes with big business is you just have, there's a lot of money involved and you just have a lot of momentum and people just continue to drive on down the same road. So this is a slightly tangential but kind of related the entire Department of Defense and CIA are all in the midst of massive, massive efforts to move their classified data to the cloud. They want to, they believe this is a genius idea that they're uh-huh. so, you know, I mean, I mean, the bottom line is, right, all the cloud means is that your data is not on your server, it's on somebody else's. That's all it means. It yeah. means it's, it's still got to reside somewhere. It doesn't actually float around in the sky. So all it means is that instead of it all residing on government-controlled equipment, sitting hopefully in a secure facility uh, under lock and key and behind fences, that you're now going to contract with, and basically they're contracting with Amazon, to host all of this. And now the security of all of our classified information, including the names of assets and identities of undercover officers, will all be entrusted to some contractor hired by a commercial company and the facility. And, you, 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 you know, it's like watching a slow-motion train wreck. You read about it, and I've written about it many, many times. You know exactly how this story ends. The story ends in a year or two years or five years with the revelation that there has been a massive data breach and that basically all of our classified intelligence now lives in Moscow or Beijing or, or somewhere else. And oh, yeah. afterward, everyone will profess to be boggled as to how we ever thought it was a good idea to turn over our crown jewels <laughs> to a commercial company. And yet now, if you criticize it, there's nobody stopping because because Amazon's making ungodly sums of money oh. and all the former yeah. government oh, officials who left the U.S. government who work for Amazon now working on the contract are making huge bucks on the contract. Um, and there's just too much money to go around. So we're going to blow off all of the security concerns and drive down this road, even though anybody with any common sense knows that what's at the end of it, disaster. Well, you know, what's, what's even funnier is you, you hear members of Congress saying that we've got to uh, investigate these high-tech companies such as Amazon and Google and blah, 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 blah. And you hear about lawsuits coming up against them filed by both the government and by individuals against Amazon, Google, and all these other high-tech companies. And yet they are still entrusting their documents and their precious data to be uploaded to this cloud. And Amazon is a monstrosity. What would you, why would you think it would be secured in a third-person server and not in a top-secret government vault where you've got fireproof, nuclear-proof, whatever. Keep the hard backup in a government vault. You don't need it in the cloud. See, I won't even upload documents to the cloud. I may put something innocuous that is something I don't care if everyone takes a look at only so that I can share it with other people. Uh, but 
I, I won't put anything up into the cloud. I keep on getting my computer saying, you haven't backed up to the cloud. And I keep going, no shit, Sherlock, and I'm not going to. If, if someone little like me can understand the ramifications of this, why would I think my government would be as sane as I am? Duh, what am I thinking, Sam? Yeah, well, too much money and just, I mean, I... So I was standing in a facility, a unit affiliated with NSA a few years back, and they were in the process. I was there because I was doing working with them, training some personnel and so forth. And they were swapping out all of their computers in this unit that does sensitive work for NSA. And they were bringing them in on big flatbed carts, and every single one of them was still in the box. Every single one of them was manufactured in China. And I said to one of the guys as they're taking these things down and hooking them up to this sensitive classified system, I said, does, is, does anybody here worry at all about the possibility that the Chinese have uh, done something to these devices that, like, as soon as you plug it in, basically it's going to phone home and uh, start, you know, uploading everything to Beijing. And I was roundly... Ridicule. I was told, you know, that's 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 silly, and they, they wouldn't do that. But I, you know, you ask them, well, why is that silly, and how do you know they wouldn't do that, and wouldn't they have every incentive <laughs> on earth to do that? And, and then you just get blank stares, and you said, what is happening? What, how can you be buying thousands and thousands and thousands of computers? which I'm sure are all purchased in the name of the U.S. government, even if it doesn't identify the specific agency, and yet you believe they are around. <laughs> They're safe. I, I, I was, when I was in Iraq way back in 2002, you know, we were in about a year before the invasion, it was our ambition to give everybody in Iraq a Thariah phone, I think, where they could call us and tell us what they thought Saddam was doing. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but we were passing them out like hotcakes. So I got a shipment of Thraya phones from back home because we were going through them. And it, and it didn't explain to me how they'd been procured. So I asked the Washington how they'd been procured, and they said something to the effect of they're non-attributable. And I said, okay, I just humor me because that doesn't actually mean a damn thing to me. What, what does that mean to you? Well, they were purchased, and they weren't purchased saying they were for CIA. I said, okay. Were they purchased saying they were for the U.S. government? Yes. Okay. So in your mind, if I give this to an Iraqi and he goes to Baghdad, this is while Saddam still around, and he gets caught with this Dariah phone, and they check with the company and ask who purchased the phone, and he and the answer is the United States government. In your mind, the Iraqi intelligence is going to say, oh, well, that's fine. As long as you just work for the Americans, not the American CIA, sorry to bother you. You can continue on <laughs> What are you talking about? You're going to get everybody killed that has one of these. So we took them, boxed them back up, sent them back to Washington, found our own, moved on, did other things. But what is this mentality? What are you talking about? Anyway. 
you know, it's very funny because, you know, we take technology for granted, but we don't pay attention to how it can be so easily breached. You know, I I look at these people that have these echo devices or whatever they have or uh, Siri or whatever they have. And it's like, well, Siri, you know, and we're finding out that, oh, lo and behold, yes, Amazon and Google and whoever else provides you with these little smart devices are uploading all your pictures and your conversations and Lord knows whatever else you think you're saying in the privacy of your own home, your bedroom, or wherever you have these devices. Lord knows what they now have stored on you sitting somewhere as if it would not be used and and. and Hello, maybe it's sitting in Colin Powell's living room or bedroom. Lord knows what data is being kept on you. And you think it's you're being private? I, I won't have one of those things. If, if anything, you know, I, when I walk away from my computers, the cameras I make sure are unplugged and turned off. You know, our, our technology that comes into us is so insidious, and yet we don't realize how much it has permeated our lives. You, know, you think about this, Sam. If we had, we were talking about power outages. If we had a power outage, which we had during Hurricane Matthew, where we didn't have power for about a week, how many people fled because they couldn't get their medicine? They they didn't have food stocked up. If we were to have a massive power outage that lasted a week to two weeks, how many millions of Americans would end up dying? They don't realize the ramifications of technology in our everyday life. Yeah, that, well, that's absolutely true. People people think of a power outage as being maybe an inconvenience, and depending on how long it goes on, you know, kind of a traumatic event. But they don't recognize exactly what you just said, which is if you're talking about something that's widespread and continues for a while, you're going to almost immediately begin to have significant numbers of people die. I mean, if, if you get up, if you get up tomorrow and the electricity is off in your home and electricity is off entirely over a wide area. Um, just start working through what you don't have. You know, you don't have lights, you don't have water. Um, you have whatever gas is left in your car, but you can't put more in because even if you drive to a gas station, they can't pump. Um, you can't access any money. You can't call 911. You start working, I mean, basically real fast, you're back pre-industrial age except you're not prepared you don't you're worse than that because you don't have a well from which you can draw water by hand and you don't have a field where you're growing your own food um you're you're just jammed so yes some people in hospitals die i mean generators run out of fuel people in hospitals die people you know it's just it's it's not a it's not an inconvenience thing it is a massive you know, catastrophe. It is because while we had the power outage, I turned around to my husband and my stepson and said, "Let's we we've got enough gas. We know for the next couple of days. Let me just go and and finish up uh, and and get some extra gas because we have these extra cans that are empty now because we've used them. Let's go to the gas station and just fill them up and just top off the cars. We go to the gas station and I had cash. Do you know not? Out of five gas stations I went to, not one would take cash, and four out of the five weren't even able to take a debit or credit card. Only one station in our area of the county was able to take a credit card. 
And it had to be a certain type of credit card because if you used a debit card, no, it couldn't take it. Uh, it, yeah. it, it. It is amazing how people take so much for granted. But the fact I had cash in hand and they refused to take cash, that's scary. Yeah, and you're just talking about a power outage without, you know, I mean, you could lose. So if we're back to talking, for instance, about the Russians and possibility of cyber attack, you can lose power, and there's no rule that says that's the only thing that the Russians have to attack, right? So you can take down power for whatever period of time. You could also attack banking systems, and not just attack banking systems in the sense of, making it impossible for you to access your money in the sense of deleting records and eliminating records. I mean, out of all your money, the average American, how much of that money is physically sitting in some sort of currency in your possession at any one time, some tiny fraction, right? Everything else is, I got this bank account and that bank account and this fund and that fund. So if those electronic records don't exist anymore, neither do the funds, right? You don't have any money. You don't, you won't, you don't have anything. You don't have record. I mean, you could – the more, as you said earlier, the more reliant we become upon all of this, the more vulnerable we are. The more you're in a position where you realize uh, we could we could suffer damage and it wouldn't just be uh, – remember, you know, it wouldn't just be three days of being miserable and hot. It would be, oh, my God, we're, we're 1600 again, basically. You know, we're back – Pre, pre-industrial revolution, and we're going to stay there. The Russians are very, the Russians are very capable. God knows the Chinese have a massive cyber effort. I mean, they they basically have their equivalent of NSA, and they spend most of their time stealing our stuff um, or accessing our stuff. So we are very vulnerable to this, and I am very skeptical that our cyber defenses are anything close to adequate. Again. No, no, I, I completely agree with you. And we already know that the Russians have been using the cyber attacks in um, the Ukraine and other uh, neighboring satellites to bring them into line. We already know that they've been doing that. So what makes us think that they wouldn't interfere with us here in the United States? We strongly suspect or know that they've attempted to hack into the last election uh, so, you know, it, it, we've got proof that they've already meddled with us, and yet we hear President Trump you know, making his announcement that we're going to double up our efforts in cyber espionage against Russia. But we've got China. We've got India doing it. Uh, we've got partnerships with now Iran and North Korea with the unholy axis, as we should call them. Uh, so we are very, very vulnerable and you know, the average American isn't aware. And yet we have politicians that bloviate, oh, we're it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And we worry more about what's in the Mueller report than worrying about what's going on our southern border, what is going on in our own backyard. Uh, we've got more important things to worry about, and yet all you hear is just what the greatest soundbite could possibly be at the moment. Yeah, amen. That's, that's, pretty, that's, that's a pretty good summary of the pretty good summary of the situation, right? I mean, that threats stacked up all over the place. I mean, in regard, and in regard to many of these threats, I mean, I think when we do say that we're going to do something about it, what it translates to is we build another bureaucracy. We throw some more money at Washington, D.C. How much of it turns into anything that means anything 
concretely, you know, where the rubber meets the road, that's a whole different deal. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been talking recently a lot about the DNI, which they're talking about getting rid of as an example of what, what the heck was that about? Why did, why did we add several thousand people on top of an already giant bureaucracy who do nothing but process paper? And how did that make us safer against any threat? Yeah, it's possible. Now, it looks like I've got possibly our next guest has been trying to call in. Uh, if it is our next guest on the line, please press 1. That way I can verify because you're calling in from a different phone number than I am familiar with. Uh, Sam, just to let you know, you know who's following on your footsteps. Uh, we're waiting for former Congressman Tom Tancredo, who was down at the Wall Symposium at the border. Uh, so you know, this is something else that's going on. We've got a huge symposium going down on the border, sponsored by a lot of major groups such as WeBuildTheWall.us. And uh, do you see it anywhere in the news? No, because the border is not a crisis, right? Yes. So along with the whole issue of slanted news coverage, and, you know, I mean, slanted is being generous, but everyone is familiar with, there is the other phenomenon, which is simply just don't talk about things that don't fit a particular narrative. We just basically make them non-events as if they didn't, as if they didn't occur at all. We were talking earlier about the, the attack on Washington State and the ICE facility. Not accurate completely to say it got no coverage. It got very little coverage compared to coverage the same week of tweets by the President of the United States that were taken as racist. So I'm not suggesting that, that, you know, if you want to comment on the president's tweets, that's fine. That, that more power to you. But that got massive wall-to-wall coverage while a guy attacking a facility uh, and domestic terrorism was almost hidden from view. Well, well I, I'm hoping that this is our next – because the call keeps on coming in and dropping – so I'm I'm thinking that this may be our next guest. Let me, Sam. Let me just bring this call in on the line, uh, just with some patience, because this individual has been trying to call in, and we know we're having a problem with the switchboard through Blog Talk Radio. And is this former Congressman uh, Tom Tancredo? No, it's not. I, I apologize about that. Whenever I was trying to press one and take it back off, it wasn't allowing me to do that. So I didn't want to mistake you guys. Okay. Well, thank you for uh, listening in, unless you have a question for our, our guest, Sam Faddis. Uh, yes, I did. I actually wanted to uh, talk to you guys and ask you guys if you were uh, interested in uh, uh, joining the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh, we are happy in our faith as it stands now. Thank you for the call. All are right. you a uh, Very all right. We never know who calls in, Sam. <laughs> Live radio, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> always exciting. Oh, yes, always exciting. But I have to apologize because we are having a problem with the switchboard. We rely on uh, Skype as well as uh, Blog Talk Radio to handle the switchboard. And they're, they're having a little bit of a kerfuffle today. So we're, we'll just Should be, be the patient. We'll keep <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I had so much stuff I wanted to pull aside, you know, to talk to you about. And you know, we already addressed the issue about um, 
the, our intelligence. But what people don't realize is that over a long number of years, our intelligence uh, divisions such as the CIA, the NSA, the FBI, and every other alphabet soup out there has been um, – I'm trying to think, a diluted is the word I'm looking for, you know, where we used to get street smart guys in there doing the actual footwork. Um, we are now coming up with these kids that are just analysts. They sit behind a computer and that's all they do. You know, people like you just don't exist anymore. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I bring this down to the world of intelligence, but I think there are probably parallels in a lot of uh, other professions that deal with, you know, security and criminal justice, law enforcement, intelligence, all these things. Yeah, it's it's just it's not it's not just a job, and you can't sort of hire anybody and and teach them how to do it. You kind of got to find the right, exactly the right people, and then train them very well, and then season them. And you just can't run it like any other federal bureaucracy, you know, it's just not, it's not the kind of, when you're, when you're trying to recruit somebody inside the Kremlin and get them to betray their country and trust you and then handle them as a source and avoid getting wrapped up and steal the crown jewels. You you know, you can't do that by committee and you can't do it by some rule book or set of regulations. And that's basically the road we've been on for decades now is trying to turn this into just another federal bureaucracy. And increasingly now in CIA, they sort of just hire you and then decide after they hire you what they want you to do as a, as a job with the idea that they can kind of train anybody to be a case officer, an operations officer, and handle sources. And I would imagine the same thing happens with uh, cops on the, you know, uh, cops who yeah. are actually street well, cops that you can train them, but you absolutely. can't just take anybody and have them be good at it. Right. Exactly. Sam, I want to thank you for joining us because we do have former Congressman Tom Tancredo on the phone. Awesome. Reminding everyone to go to go to your magazine and 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 magazine.com. And again, Sam, uh, those that are listening in on the podcast later on, just click on the link. And it'll te- take you directly over to your magazine, which I love. I mean, I, I use it all the time. I get your emails. And God bless you and your wife for the hard work you do. Thank you. Great talking to you. Take all care. right. And it looks like uh, Congressman Tancredo is having a problem with our switchboard. Congressman, we're trying to get you in here. Uh, so just bear with it. Hi. Is Congressman uh, Tom Tancredo? Yes, it is, ma'am. Oh, Hello. Finally, finally, finally. I'm, I'm. We're with you. We can hear you. We can hear okay, you. Okay, good. Uh, I'm hi, Congressman. I'm at the wall, and it's a little noisy because somebody else is speaking. Let me try to find a less noisy uh, spot to hide here. Just a second. Oh, that's that, that's fine. We understand. Okay, you know, it, it's on live radio, you know, defecation occurs on live radio. You never right. Usually my dog get. starts barking, <laughs> but I don't have one here right now, so we can avoid that that particular problem. But yeah. uh, now you Okay, doing, is that any better? Oh, you're you're perfect. Can you you're hear absolutely me? Absolutely perfect, sir. Yes, we can hear you loud and clear. Now, right. you're All at right. the border. 
you are currently at the border at the Wall Symposium, which you find nothing in the news. If it wasn't for the fact I was getting the emails uh, from uh, We Build the Wall, and I've been talking to Anna Polina, who works with um, uh, Benevenuto, uh, as well as several other people uh, that deal with the wall issue, I wouldn't have known this was going on. And thank you for working with WeBuildTheWall.us. Um, tell us what's going on down there. Oh, man, it is. I know what you're saying, first of all, about, you know, the lack of attention that the media has paid to it. But we shouldn't be too surprised about that. But what they've done here now, I'm on the advisory board. So, you know, my my major function really is to do what I'm doing right now and talk about it. But the folks that actually did the, the hard work of finding the location, working with the landowner, then getting the permit. Then working with a construction company, I, I have to tell you, it is absolutely. I, I, I only, I, it's a, it's a bit hyperbolic, but not entirely. When I say it's the eighth wonder of the world, it's, it's incredible because here is about a, about a little over three quarters of a mile of wall, starting at the Rio Grande, going up to something called Mount Cristo Rey, very, very rugged area. The Border Patrol and the Corps of Engineers told them could not be built. Uh, too expensive and too difficult because of the, of the terrain going up this mountainside. Um, the landowner, Mr. Cudahy, who had a, uh, a brickyard here, begged, begged to have some sort of barrier because people were coming across, stealing everything he had, vandalizing his property, finally had to shut down the business. We found out about it. We came down here and got the permits, got which was not easy, let me tell you. Uh, I will put it this way: corruption doesn't stop at the border. Okay, so just understand that. And and but we worked through it all. And with in, when we took up the first shovel of dirt to build this this huge uh, 18 foot high bollard wall. This these are bollard steel posts um, that are absolutely better than anything used by the federal government. Theirs is what they say is 25-year lifespan. Ours is 85. It's, our sensors are better. We built a concrete road along the side of the wall for the Border Patrol so they could patrol. We call it the Deplorables Highway. We, we have a lighting system that, honest to goodness, would rival any major baseball park. It, it, it is really and truly something to see, and you can by going to, you, uh, to webuildthewall.us. And so we're doing a symposium right now down here, a bunch of speakers and, uh, you know, talking about the problems of illegal immigration. And we are preparing for the second and third phase of this thing. Um, We can't can't tell you where because the minute we tell anybody where we're going, the other side, of course, runs down there, tries to get a a judge to stop us. So um, it's a wonderful undertaking. It was funded entirely by private donations. We have almost 400,000 people who have donated. I think the average is around $60 a person. Um, we, the government said that it would cost 20-some million dollars to build the wall on this where we are and would take maybe a year and a half. We built it in 11 days from the time that we actually dug the first uh, shovel of dirt. It was 57 days from the time we first got here and had to go through the permit process, buy the land, do all that stuff. But, but 11 days we built it, and we built it for $8.5 million. So we did it for a 
you know, a third of the cost, a, a tenth of the time, and and a heck of a lot better than any other barrier on the border. You know, it's, it's an amazing organization, We Build the Wall. And, you know, when they first started up, I heard a lot of different stories and people going, well, if I'm paying my tax dollars, why am I giving it to a private organization? But look at what they have done and what they're able to do. In less than two weeks, they can do what takes our government two years to do. Now, they had problems where you had the mayor of one town trying to stop the, the uh, right. construction because it's, you didn't get the proper permits. And when they pulled out all the permits and said, yes, we do, they were not able to stop right. the construction. They also did it over a Memorial Day weekend when everyone was out having their barbecues, not paying attention. And they said, well, That's go right. ahead, have your barbecues. <laughs> we're more worried about the security on our border than your hot dogs and barbecues. Uh, so, you know, I love the organization, and we've had several members of the uh, the board on this, the show here. <coughs> Excuse me. So I'm glad to have, have you join us. You know, uh, it, it is an amazing, an amazing outfit, and if I were to give my money to an organization, it would be WeBuildTheWall.us. It's either my church or that. That's right. And you've got to be careful of what your church is doing with it, by the way. I mean, Michelle Malkin was just speaking here, and she's got a new book coming out, and it focuses on what the churches, especially the Catholic Church, has been doing with the hundreds of millions of dollars in, in government funds it's been receiving. It's not the only one. Lutheran Refugee Services is another. They, they support open borders. They work tirelessly to, um, uh, to o- overturn any sort of attempt on the part of the, uh, President Trump, especially, um, to do anything to secure the border. Uh, for them, unfortunately, it is a money issue uh, far more than, than anything else. But, uh, so, but here's an organization. We build the wall. Uh, our money, the money donated, it goes for a wall. And, you know, as long as we have some funds and have some places, the hard part truly is finding the places because – you, you've got to, first of all, well, we had to map the entire border. We had to get identify every inch of the border who owned the land on our side. Because, of course, wow. as I say, we can only do private land. So that took a while, and that took expense. Then we have to find the owners that might be willing to have us build a wall. If they are, then we've got to work out the lease or the, or the, uh, or the, or the buyout. Uh, then we have to work with the permits. And it, it is a very difficult task, but we did it, and we can continue to do it, uh, and we will continue to do it. And I, I always say, you know, Mr. President, uh, when they stop you, uh, apparently, which they have in the courts and in the Congress, uh, just tell them, don't worry, I'll have we build a wall do it, <laughs> and we can do it. <laughs> we'll build a wall on this whole damn border, and we had to go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny because it took more than 100 years, I think going back to 1825, to finally settle where the exact border is between North and South Carolina. And that's a small area compared to what your undertaking is at the U.S. border, stretching from uh, the California all the way through to the Florida Gold Coast. You know, it, it's, it's an amazing, an amazing in, endeavor. And we're going to get it done. And we're going to see our nation finally having some security. But you mentioned something very, very important, the VOLOG, those volunteer organizations that have strong links to a lot of religious institutions. You meant the Lutherans, 
uh, the Catholics also. And like you, I am a former Catholic. And I, I mean, I grew up at a time where, you know, you trusted the church. You, you, you grew up. I actually yeah. taught Sunday school. Uh, at that same time, I had my own business. Uh, up in New York, I had a travel agency of all things um, back in the 70s, and just as Reagan was coming into the office, which was a good time to be a travel agent. You know, I, I left the corporate world. I, I became a New York City police officer, and I talk about this, and my, my listeners know. I had an incident at a Catholic church. We get a burglary call. We show up. We start to ask them what is missing, and this was in the 80s. And it turns out they were issuing green cards. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. The only authority to issue those green cards oh, to an gosh. immigrant is the federal government, isn't it? It is not. That is correct. The Catholic yes, Church. Yes, ma'am. That is correct. Now, suddenly that burglary report was nixed. That report was nixed in a heartbeat. I mean, within five minutes, the sergeant was on the scene. Said they're not going to make a report, and we were ushered out. That was the oh, day brother. I left the Catholic Church. I didn't lose my faith. I just left the church. Yeah. Well, I, I went 12 years, Catholic elementary and, and high school. Um, I certainly understand your, what, what happened. Much uh, kind of similar things happened to me. Uh, and as I say, Michelle Malkin, she, her book is coming out in doggone it. I am so embarrassed that I can't remember the title. And I'm, I wrote a some pub notes for her. So, but uh, she, she is have her book will be out in just a few weeks and it focuses on this entire problem. So kind of watch for that. And uh, you might want to have her on too. Well, I, I'll get a hold of her, her guys, my guy, which is me, will contact her guys, but give her a heads up. <laughs> right. And I'm going to also, actually uh, a number of years ago, I met Louis Gohmert several times at the South Carolina Tea Party Coalition Convention, which you actually should try to get yourself to, which is yep. The, yep. the Martin Luther King weekend here in Myrtle Beach. Uh, but uh, Louis has met me, and he said he's happy to be on, but I've yet to get him on. So you can grab him by the ear. Well, he's going to be say, here tomorrow. This is an intel- say, this he's going to be here tomorrow. I'm on the panel with him tomorrow. Oh, awesome. 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 So I, then I'll throw your name him. around. <laughs> From one Italian to well, another, I'll be happy to throw your right. name around. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it'll be fine. <laughs> Yo, well, my anyway. grandmother said, Anuch, uh, that'd be a nice Italian boy. You'd be good to him. <laughs> like a silly voice. <laughs> well, you know, when, when I first ran for office in 1976 in Colorado, I ran for the state legislature, and I um, – I said to my parents, who were both alive at the time they had retired, my mom was a, she worked for Joslin's department store for 45 years as a clerk. My dad was a truck driver. Blue-collar people, not really political very much. But I, So I went to him and I said, you've got to help me. I'm running, but I can't leave my – I was teaching school. And so I said, I can't leave the you know, campaign, so you've got to do it every day. And, and, and my mom would say – so she says, well, well, what do we do? And I said, well, you know, you hand out stuff and tell people what a great guy I'm in and the stuff like that. She goes, well, okay, what do we give out? So we, we came up with a, with, um, it's called, uh, it's just a little card on one side. It was a Tancredo family recipe for spaghetti and spaghetti sauce. <laughs> and it was her recipe truly was on the other. It had this hokey. Oh my gosh. Uh, Tom Tancredo's recipe for good government, a tash of integrity, a, a spoonful of honesty. It was the most 
hokey thing you have ever, ever seen in your life. But we didn't know. What the hell did we know? We were, you know, sitting around the kitchen table trying to think of something that people wouldn't throw away. So we, we go hand them out, right? And every day I'd go to work, but they'd go. My campaign manager was another teacher, and she'd make their little map for them, and, and they'd go out every day with these cards. And one day my father says to me, that's it, I quit. I said, what do you mean you quit? You can't quit. And he says, yep, yep. He says, um, every day it's the same thing. He says, I get, uh, you know, we go to our, to our place. I go up my side of the block. I hand out my cards. I look across the street. Your mother's not there. I walk across the street and I have to walk all the way down to the first house. And there she is saying, <laughs> but he's such a good boy. <laughs> so I said, my mom, I said, mom, you got to kick it up. Dad's going to, you know, he's going to quit. And she goes, well, Tommy, you know, what am I going to do? She says, people always go, well, what do you think? What are all the things he believes in? What do you know? And she always says, you know, honey, I don't know anything about politics, but he's a good boy. <laughs> and I won. <laughs> and oh, oh, listen, See, maybe, your mom and, maybe your mom first, and my mom came out of the same school. <laughs> absolutely. And the first speech I gave as a newly elected state representative, right, I'm so proud. And as I walk off, some guy grabs my arm and he goes, who are you? Yeah, who, who are you? And I said, well, I'm Tom Tancredo. I'm your new state representative. And he goes, what happened to that older guy I voted for? Because <laughs> he had voted for my dad. <laughs> and, of course, I think everybody else had voted for my mom. <laughs> and so I said, oh, well, you know, they, 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 they resigned. They gave it to me. I don't know. Let me tell you. <laughs> and, you know, the funniest thing is um, I, I jar my own stuff. And thank God bless my grandmother. She she showed me how to do all this when I was growing up. So I, I had jarred seven quarts of uh, pasta sauce. And I don't call it gravy because when I make it, it's not a gravy. It's a sauce. You understand the difference. Uh, being I Italian, do. I never even it, heard it, of that thing, gravy. Uh, that was I've never heard of that all my life and, until started, somebody started talking about spaghetti sauce as gravy. No, I've never heard of gravy. <laughs> Gravy is when you use the meat as a base or a beef stock right. or a chicken stock. Right. It's a gravy. But and I don't like gravy. Truly, you, don't, <laughs> you, don't, you, don't, you don't do that because I never know what I'm going to use it for, you know, because you can use pasta sauce for so many different things. And so I, my stepson is visiting, so he's always talking about the way my husband, who I be Latvian, what do they know about making pasta sauce? So he's always talking about my husband's pasta sauce. So I had made fresh meatballs and the sauce, and I had served the pasta. He goes, well, it's almost as good as Olive Garden. Oh, Tom, I could have almost strangled it. <laughs> oh, oh, brother. Yeah, those are, them's are fighting well, words. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, we're talking about the border, and we're talking about actually immigrants. When you think about what our conversation is about, it's about the beauty that immigrants can bring to the country if yes. they come in legally and how they can enrich our society instead of burning it. You look at what's happening in LA and San Francisco and so forth and they're giving more attention to an illegal immigrant who committed a crime to come here to the United States than to the homeless that are sitting in the street. And where they say there's, there's something like I, I, I'm going to probably take a number off the top of my head, something like about 500,000 right now in one area of California that is a tremendous number, and yet worry more about someone committing a crime and pantry to them than to someone that really needs our help, whether it's through mental illness, PTSD, or just an economic circumstance, our own citizens. 
we're not paying attention to. Where is the logic of this, Tom? There's no logic because it's got nothing to do with logic. It's got everything to do with the war on America. It is a war on the America that the founders put together. It is a war on the America that you and I love. And the left is using immigration. I just dropped him. Hello? Oh, no. Hello? Did we? Curtis, are you with me? Or did I drop? Hello? I am with you. Can you hear me? I hear both of you. Can you hear me? Okay. I think I lost you. Okay. Um, sorry. But go, go ahead and finish your thought, Tom. Oh, I was just saying that it is a, it's a war on the America that, that we love, and immigration is used as a major tactic in their strategy to take it over. It is immigration of people who don't want to be American. It is immigration of people who are told never to be American because there's nothing of value here. They want us separated. They want us divided. They want us balkanized. They want to destroy the America that was put together by the founders and that millions upon millions of immigrants came here to celebrate and to become part of. Those days are gone. We have to now fight for our very existence. And immigration is a huge battleground in that battle, in, in that war. That was it. Now, now, isn't it true that if you were to try to go to some of these countries um, that these illegals are coming from and you try the same tactics? That they're trying, you know, in other words, crossing their borders, demanding food stamps and demanding service. What what are the, what are the odds that um you'll <laughs> you'll be welcome? Be in jail. You'd be in jail. <laughs> and and it's not a very pleasant place. It's not nothing like the detention centers here that Acacia Cortez calls it concentration camps. Our detention centers are better than most of the places in terms of food, cleanliness. Um, the ability to be safe, that the kids play soccer, uh, they're better than the places from which they came. And, and I've seen them with my own eyes. I'm telling you that truthfully. They're given uh, brand new clothing. Uh, yes, they're detained. That's true. They're, they're in. But I, I'll never forget one time we were in, uh, um, I think it was Tucson. And uh, this was, I was still mm-hmm. in Congress at the time, so it had to be 10 years ago or more. Guy comes to, we are visiting a detention center. Guy comes in, wanders in out of the desert. He's an illegal alien banging on the door to get in. They let him in. He's demanding to get in because he wants dental work. And that's oh provided. Yes, he was an illegal, illegal immigrant, wanted de- dental work. They provided it. There were, uh, then we went through it. Uh, you know, the, they, were, they were, oh man, they were showing uh, us the, the facilities that they had. The, the medical facilities that they had. And, oh, my God, I will tell you, they were better than any, uh, well, no no constituent of mine in the 6th Congressional District of Colorado could ever obtain such quality health care on demand, which is what these people got, walking up and yeah. demanding it and getting it. So, what yeah, gets things me, are different. What gets me is the... Um the way they try to blame Trump for the cages and things like that. And a lot of that that stuff originated on Obama's administration. That's exactly right. It was actually, uh, you know, that separation of children thing, that was actually a judge ruled that in um, 1996, 
uh, it was part of, and, and by the way, Bill Clinton was the president of the United States. Uh, now he did not, you know, quote, pass the law, but it was a, a law. It was a, it was a, a, something that it was a decision made by a federal judge. And, and Bill Clinton didn't object to it. But Barack Obama didn't object to it. Um, now, of course, it's all Trump's fault. But everything is Trump's fault. I don't care. You know, the heat wave we're getting is probably Trump's fault. See, if it was a if it was a cold wave, it would be Trump's fault. Uh, it doesn't matter. It's all Trump's fault because he is the only bulwark we've got uh, that's stopping them in that war. They've been that they have been uh, actually uh, waging. For now, well, at least four decades. Well, well I gotta, do you, I gotta do admit, you ever uh, see us getting a handle on this, this problem? Um, Curtis, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. I, I finally got in. I got knocked out. I apologize. Go ahead, Curtis. This is your question. I was What's just saying, uh, do you yeah. think we ever get a handle on this illegal immigration problem? Um. I, I wish I could tell you with great certainty that we can and will. When I when I think about what is what we're against, um, it's like you know, do did we ever know we would be successful uh, in the Second World War, uh, even when we landed at D-Day? We we did not know what would happen and and the fight got so intense because the Germans were fighting they knew at that time for their very existence and that's what we're up against now people the the left is fighting for their very existence and the power over America and they will do anything so I don't know what the outcome will be all I can do is say I pray for our side I pray for America Oh, it's a whole new day, whole new day out there. Yes, whole new you know, day. And we, we were talking earlier about, you know, the effect of Vologs, these uh, volunteer organizations. This is big business, and, and people are not aware of, of the money that is trading hands in the background. So it's worthwhile to propagate the influx of these illegal immigrants because the more bodies they bring in, the more these Vologs collect money from the government and from charities. So it's all called, you know, butts in pews. <laughs> That's what it's called. You know, they're trying to get them there because they may they mean money and they also mean, you know, they are the, the churches are losing membership. This is one way of trying to replenish it. And yes, it's all about butts in pews. Uh, it's terrible. I mean, if they would only focus on what really and truly is well, what most people and what. For many, for centuries, for thousands of years, a couple of thousand anyway, it was, a, it was the purpose of, of Christianity, especially uh, to to you know advance the cause, to spread the good word, get people to understand the importance of a, a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, focus on that. Stay out of the politics of it, because honestly, uh, it is not going to accrue to anybody's benefit except for the people who want to destroy. The America that we love. You know, it, it's funny how yeah, I've talked about this many times because my church here is one of the ones that's in a fight for its life. We've got 
we broke away from a liberal liberal branch that is trying to shut down our churches to the point where the bishop in charge of this liberal branch said they would rather see our church, which was founded in 1712, survive the Civil War, has a very historic background to it, would rather see it turn into a mosque than to remain a conservative Christian church. But this is what we're facing. I mean, they're losing membership while we're gaining membership. They're afraid of us. Then they and they should be and and I hope they I hope that their reason for being so fearful continues because that means that we are powerful uh, at some point in time. I, and when I look at the long term, though, uh, as the gentleman was asking me, I, I don't know what to think. I don't know how how it will play out. Um, but the one thing I do know is that. All of us have a power in, and, and a role to play in this. If you think and if you believe in America, and again, the oh, America that the founders put together, and that is to get on your knees and pray. Pray first for Donald Trump. Pray for his health. Pray for his reelection. Then pray for the country itself. Pray that it retains its its purpose and provides that shining light that it has done so for how, however many centuries. So um, those are things anybody can do, you know, even if you can't donate, even if you can't get out in the street, knock on doors and all that, just you can all pray. And I believe, I believe that the country was founded truthfully. Um, there was a spiritual dimension to it. Um, and, and its success in the Revolutionary War, I believe, had a spiritual dimension to it. We we desperately need that spirit to be reinvigorated uh, by God. Well, you know, Tom, we're down to our last few minutes because I know you only had a limited time with us. I wish you would come back on the show. We need more time than just half an hour. There's so much more to talk about. I had a whole stack of notes for you, a lot of things, little funny things I wanted to talk to you about. But you are welcome back on the show anytime. You know, I'll get a hold of the guys over at uh, Publix sure. and, you know, get you back on. It is so much fun you talking bet. to you. One good Italian but, to another. Yeah, uh, bonus data. <laughs> Which is about the extent of hey, I don't know anything else, but that's about it. <laughs> well, Tom, you have a great time. You're over at the Wall Symposium. People can find you up on Facebook as well as Twitter, and they can also connect with you over at WeBuildTheWall.us. God bless you for the yes, hard ma'am. work you do, sir. God bless you too. Bye bye. <laughs> All right, Tom Tancredo, check him out. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast in the archives, please click on the link and give them a hand over there. I'm trying to bring Jim Horn on the line. I see his number up in the studio, and the studio is not cooperating with me since it dumped me out. So I'm going old school using a handset. Uh, so I hope I got Jim here. Jim, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? Oh, right. I've had better days. <laughs> We are having technical difficulty uh, by our providers, so just bear with us. We're having phone calls dropped and everything else that's going on. But we're here. Blame, and we are blame it on the climate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's climate change. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, oh, there's so much to talk about today, and I don't even know where to start with you because, you know, um, Lo and behold, we I'm watching the news this morning, and I hear uh, Mike Pompeo yesterday up on Fox News saying, oh, we're negotiating with Iran, and we've got good prospects, and everything's going jim dandy. 
And today we hear, yesterday afternoon, just shortly after Pompeo made that statement, Tehran launched a nuclear test missile that went over, what was it, 400 miles just outside of Tehran, a mid-range missile. Uh, should be, we be worried? We should be somewhat worried, but Iran is, is, is testing the waters. They're pushing an, an agenda of their own, and we're not biting the bait. That is what's really driving the mullahs nuts because they want us to attack them. They have enormous problems in their own country with their own people, and the only way they can rally the troops is to get involved in a fracas, and they're trying to invite us to get into that fracas to help them out. So uh, they're, they're, they're pushing the envelope, and it's, uh, for them it's not a very big envelope. Uh, the British are out there now with some frigates that are going to guard their ships, and they're going to run British ships in and out of the, the Gulf there in convoys so they could protect them, and other countries are going to start doing the same. So the Iranians are not going to be able to get very far with it, and at some point, I hope that uh, we get tired of that stuff if they if they try anything else on one of our ships, especially to attack one of our warships, we can go in and mine their harbors, and we can shut them down pretty easily because we have the Underwater technology, we have the airborne technology to do that stuff, and the Iranians would not know we're doing it. It's not very apparent that uh, there have been some reports where Israelis have been able to fly F-35 fighter jets over Iran at will and undetected. So obviously the Iranian detection systems are not very, very capable. <laughs> no. No, but we, we so, actually give them credence to, you know, we, we're we treating them as if they're on an equal basis rather than going, we're coming from a position of strength. So are, are we making a huge mistake in giving them too much credence? And are we also relying on who we think is in power? Is it the, the uh, oh, good Lord, uh, the Revolutionary the Guard? Or the mullahs, you know, who is the one that's truly in power? Who's pulling the strings? Or is anyone well, really truly in power? The mullahs are running the government. The IRGC, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, are probably the main power running the country. And those are the ones that we have to deal with. Those are the ones that we have to overcome. And I don't think that we would have much problem overcoming them if we needed to. Because they are a bunch of bombastic fools, and they, you know, they believe their own nonsense. Basically, I, I, I say that quite often. This is one of the one of the fallacies of Muslims is that uh, they tell lies, and they believe their own lies. And if you fail to believe their lie, then they're entitled to get outraged at you. They can't tolerate the truth. They can't tolerate facts. They just have to have their own way. And the IRGC, okay, they, they've been fairly effective in going into Syria, which has opened the door for them, so they haven't had to sneak in. Lebanon is, of course, defenseless, so they're in there. And uh, or Hamas, the Palestinians have let them in because they're not getting the money and the support they needed from the Saudis anymore, nor from us. So the Iranians are, are getting some 
headway in, in, in building up forces around Israel, and uh, that's their main target, of course, not us, but they're just trying to neutralize us or, or make us turn tail. And unfortunately, I don't think we will turn tail at any provocation. They're being very, very circumspect right now. They haven't attacked any American ships. They haven't attacked any American aircraft. They are not coming after us very much at all because they're really, really being careful. They don't want to get spanked. And that is what will happen if they do it. They are trying to provoke Israel. And, of course, Israel knows probably more about what's going on there than the Iranian government themselves know what's going on. The Israelis are very effective in infiltrating their bases, their facilities. They're even able to walk out with a whole library of uh, nuclear information from Iran that the Iranians thought was secret and hidden, and they were highly embarrassed when it was revealed that they that the Israelis had been in their country, had been there for, for a few days to be able to purloin all of this stuff, pack it up in suitcases, and haul it out <laughs> under their noses. <laughs> well, so, you, know, you know, everyone discounts the Israelis, um, but they know how to do clandestine uh, activities, and for some reason we've lost that ability. You know, we have grew weak under several administrations where our, our – Intelligence services have been diluted badly. Now, you worked oh, yes. with the Department of State, and you were there putting your life on the line, working side by side with Muslims that were friends and Muslims that were foe. So you know yes. both sides of the coin. But yes, people like you are no longer in the service. So should we be scared? I think we should be very, very, very concerned. It started with uh, President Peanut. Jimmy Carter, yeah. When he uh, when, when when he disassembled the CIA with Stansfield Turner, who said all we need are satellites, and they took away the other two legs of the triad of intelligence, spies on the ground, and being able to get in there and learn what's going on. And when they when they took that away. We couldn't see what was going on under roofs. We couldn't hear what was going on behind closed doors, and we couldn't see who was going where and talking to whom. So therefore, the crippling of our intelligence apparatus started under Jimmy Carter, and it has continued under a couple of other presidents, so we have been able to recover a lot of that. Um, in, 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 the, in the realm of intelligence, human intelligence is, is vitally important. You can have satellites taking pictures of anything you want, tracking things around, but without human intelligence knowing what people's intentions, thoughts, and plans are, you really don't have a very good operation. And that's where we've been hurt. The Israelis have not been hindered by any of that foolish stuff. So they've got people. They have people that have migrated to Israel from Iran who are absolutely native language speakers who can walk into the city of Tehran and blend in in a heartbeat, and that's exactly what they're doing. They have a lot of that stuff going on. They're all over Iran because Iran has promised to destroy Israel, and Israel is not going to let that happen. They probably have people in, in government. 
They have people in the Iranian intelligence service. They have all the information that they probably need to protect themselves and to know exactly what's going on, what's going to transpire, when, where, and probably how, and they're prepared to uh, defeat it. Now, they have the IRGC Corps in Syria and Lebanon with, with tons of rockets, as well as in uh, uh, the, the Gaza Strip. So they are trying to build up enough rocketry, enough munitions to be able to attack Israel at some point and maybe overwhelm the Israeli Iron Dome missile defenses, at which time if they do that, Israel will come back in a very, very hostile manner on the Iranian government. So, but but that, is a, that is a risk that the Israeli people are under today. And what the, what the Iranians, I think, are doing, and I think I've written about it, is the Iranians are going in and they're building a lot of stockpiles, and they're also putting a few out at the end of uh, airfields and stuff like that as bait for the Israelis to come in and bomb and blow up. There's probably old munitions that are not reliable anymore anyway. So, they're, <laughs> they, think they're, so they think they're being smart, but uh, the Israelis are playing along with them to let them think they're smart when the Israelis actually have a much better idea of what's going on. And the, the Iranians are just not up to the mark with that. They, they pretend they are. You know, it's all puff their chest out and preen their beard and uh, make noise and stamp their feet and say, <laughs> we're, we're going to get you. But uh, that's, that's all bravado. That's, and that, that's really all they have to go for them. They can, they can go down the street and pick up some Iranian people and beat them up. Yes. And that is unfortunate because that's what that type of a system of government does. It just bullies and frightens people, but they're not all that successful at it because they got a lot of people probably resent what's going on, resent what's happening, and will cooperate with anybody as, as long as they can be protected to work against their own government because it's just a terrible government. The people are suffering. They don't have health care. They don't have proper food. They don't have clothing. They don't have jobs. They're just really, really in a, in a tough position. And that is what the Iranian government wants to try and rally them against us in case something goes off. That's, that's their best uh, self-defense is rallying the troops. But the troops are not going to be very much uh, rallyable. Well, you know, here, here comes my question because we did have the uh, the Irish, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> the uh, the Iranian Spring, the April uprising, which was very quickly quashed. Uh, there was no no support from our American government. We also have a huge Iranian community, which you saw in a major rally up in California when Trump was running for office that we still do have a large Iranian community within the United States. At one point, we did use them as assets for intelligence because they could link back to family members and get information through to us without yes. people you know, being placed in harm's way. Uh, it, was, it was a good system, which was, as you said, dismantled. And with the fall of the Shah of Iran, we had so many assets in place that we didn't utilize them. Do you think that the Iranian people are finally reaching their breaking point, or do the mullahs and the um, Revolutionary Guards still have enough control 
and intimidation on the people to prevent an uprising at this time. Is this something we're looking maybe five, ten years down the road, or is this something that can happen tomorrow? I am not exactly sure, but the, the, the intimidation is still there. We have to remember that when the Ayatollah took over Iran, the CIA had blundered and left a bunch of files in the American embassy showing the names and locations of everybody that they had had contact with and who had been working with them. That was reprehensible. That was in violation of U.S. law, and nobody in the CIA went to jail for that. But the Iranians were able to get that stuff. They were able to slip down with scotch tape and take shredded documents because they weren't properly shredded. They were stripped shredded rather than terminal destruct shredding. And they sat down there for years with dozens of people or hundreds of people, and they, they pasted all of that stuff back together to get the information. Then they went out and they rounded up anybody who had been affiliated with the CIA or with any, in, in, any Department of Defense or anybody else in the embassy. They rounded them up. They took them to stadiums. They brought their families along, and they tortured their children. They tortured their wives. They tortured their parents to death, and then they killed these people one by one in a stadium full, and they videotaped it, and those videos are still played periodically on Iranian TV to keep people frightened and scared because the way they took care of those people was as barbaric and savage as you can imagine. That is part of their intimidation program. There are a lot of people who know about that, and there are people who are smart, smarter than the government, and who will probably get out and step around some of that stuff to help us, and they're maybe doing it now. But it's a, it's a real risk for them because they know what will happen if the Iranians get any any idea who they are, even if they look at an Iranian IRGC guard cross-site, they could likely, likely be picked up and tortured and their families tortured to death. So that's a real ugly group of people that we're dealing with there. So yeah. we need if we, if, if we do anything, we need to do something with uh, cruise missiles or uh, we, we sent those uh, B-52 bombers over there. They're down there in Diego Garcia. And I think there's four, maybe more by now that we've sent secretly. We also have the B-1 bombers and others. And uh, BLU-82, the, the mother of all bombs, uh, capable C-130s and C-5s Mola. and everything else, who could fly over Iran. We already know how to, because the Israelis have demonstrated it, to, to blot out the, uh, their radar and so they can't detect when somebody's coming over. And we could <clears throat> use those monster bombs on Iranian bunkers and take out their leadership, decapitate the IRGC, decapitate the government, take out the mullahs with conventional bombs that would just tear the area apart. And that is something that I think they might be aware of. And if they're not, they should be of. And they should be very, very, very afraid of that. We should do well, it with conventional weapons. We don't need nukes. Didn't, didn't we take out a subterranean uh, uh, nuclear uh, material uh, facility using a Moab uh, a couple of years back? No, we used the Moab in uh, Afghanistan 
in uh, the mountains there where, where the Taliban were hiding out. And we dropped one bomb, and we took out about uh, 20 or 25 caves and tunnels and buried a bunch of people and wiped out an entire operation. And we only did that one time. We did it in, uh, in uh, I think, eastern Afghanistan, and it was very, very effective, and it did a lot for us. I don't know why we're not doing it more, except that the uh, Taliban are smart enough to not gather together in large groups anymore. They all keep spread out, so it's kind of hard to get them to spread out like that. Jim. Excuse me. Go ahead, Curtis. Jim. Yes. When we were in Pakistan under the Obama administration, I believe there was a physician who helped us um, in identifying um, Osama bin Laden. And from what I remember, we kind of like left him there, you know, to fend for itself. Doesn't that hurt our ability to recruit others to help us in other countries if they feel like we're going to abandon them? Yes. Obama abandoned that man, and I think the guy is still locked up someplace. And why we're not doing more to get him out, I I don't understand. Uh, This is something that uh, the Trump administration needs to go back and revisit and talk about getting him out. Maybe it was a part of the discussion when uh, President Khan was here last week or earlier this week with uh, President Trump. It might be some sort of cooking up some sort of deal to get the man out. But it's certainly something that we need to do. Uh, Abandoning an asset as important and as valuable as he has been for us is just unconscionable. Um, Someone someone in uh, the chat room, oh, moving, uh, made a a funny joke saying, 10 million cans of Spam and pineapple dropped on Iran will change Iran forever. That's one way to get yeah. rid of our surplus spam. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, <clears throat> it, it's an interesting uh, situation over there because, like you said, we had uh, a visit from our Iranian leader here, and, you know, it seemed like all everything was hunky-dory, but when they turn around and then launch a mid-range missile test, it makes you wonder just who is running the show over there. And, you know, there were questions as to how much influence the Iranian uh, uh, Revolutionary Guard have on the situation with the mullahs. Is there a power struggle between the two, or are they cooperating? Because I still don't fully understand the dynamics over there. You understand it better than I do. The mullahs are in charge politically. The IRGC is in charge militarily. And that includes the police. Uh, there, there may be conflicts between them, but they're they're not bubbling up to the surface. They're they're both stuck on. Let's let's put it this way: they're both stuck on that rock together, and they're kind of isolated. Even though they're trying to work around and isolate Israel, they've got a problem with uh, Saudi Arabia. They have got a problem with their adventure in uh, Yemen where they're not faring all that well. And they are doing things in Afghanistan that are not winning very much for them. So they're meddling in other countries. Of course, they're they're one of the the, the number one 
terrorist country in the world financiers with with uh, the money cut off, so to speak, with with uh, Obama not available to send them plane loads of cash anymore. A lot of these things are are not following through, so they don't have the money to do what they're doing. They were financing billions of dollars for for Islamic terrorists in Nigeria. That has all withered on the vine. So they are having to pull back in a couple of areas, and, and that, is, that is one of our advantages because they don't have the money to do what they want to do. They can still buy their own cognac, and I'm sure they do. Even, <laughs> you know they're not the, supposed to drink alcohol. <laughs> that That's a fallacy. I, I have too much experience with that. <laughs> Now, our, our embargo on their oil uh, and our sanctions against them, how much is it really hurting them? Is this why they're going after the tankers coming through, just to try to reclaim their their profit on the oil industry? Mm, uh, the, embar- the embargo on them is hurting them badly. Uh, they're going after other tankers to try and disrupt the flow for their neighbors and cause their neighbors trouble. Just, that's just because they're being nasty. Uh, we have to understand one thing that's very, very fundamental is that they've got the Shia Muslims and you have the Sunni Muslims. And when the 12th Caliph, after Muhammad, was assassinated, that was the establishment of the Shia. And the Shia and the Sunnis have been after each other, killing each other, butchering each other for 1,200 years. And that's not going to stop. They will not play nice-nice. The only time they will do anything nice-nice with each other is if they're going after the infidel. So if we we support the Saudis against them, they will not team up with the Iranians to come after us. So we're playing one side against the other, and right now we are on the winning side. And that that is really driving the Mullahs crazy because they know that we know what we're doing. Absolutely, absolutely. And I just want to mention that some people are trying to listen in on Facebook. They're having a problem with the sound. Uh, I can't do anything about that while I'm in mid-show, but uh, we do have sound on Blog Talk and SHR Media, so I'll have to worry about mixing this later on. You know, there's so much that we don't know about these situations, and you had mentioned about Takiya and Kidum, and here we have it here in our United States in our House of Representatives, shall I mention the squad, specifically the squad. Ilhan Omar? And oh, what yeah. a whole show you can do about this one woman, about what's coming out about her true background, and that her last name really isn't Omar. It may be something else. There's a lot of interesting stuff that's coming out about that. But do you think we would ever see the impeachment of a sitting member of the House of, of Representatives? Well, we have problems with too many liberal judges who want to employ Sharia law in American courts. And under Sharia law, marrying your brother is not a crime. Okay, so she's trying to impose the Sharia law, and she's using Sharia jurisprudence every chance she gets. And that's what she's talking is talking from Sharia, from the point of Sharia. She doesn't respect our Constitution. She doesn't respect our laws. 
She has no respect for the United States government or anything else. She is there with an agenda, and her agenda is to cause as much trouble and as much heartache and disruption as she can. And she's having some success with it because we have a media that will play to her, 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 will dance to her tune, I guess. If we had a media that was civilized and decent, they wouldn't give her the time of the day and she wouldn't get a page in any newspaper or news outlet. She would die on the vine. But as long as she's making all those noise, they got all these foolish people fawning after her. And that, that's giving her a lot of uh, a lot of clout. But she ultimately is not going to get very far with it. I would suggest that the Immigration Service is uh, quietly investigating stuff and building a case. And I would hope that at some point in the near future, they'll walk into her office and lay a warrant on her desk and then have her do the perp walk down the hall and take mm. her to trial for violating immigration laws and deporting her. And that may happen sooner than later, but they're not going to talk about it until we do it. Uh, it, that 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 would be a dream come true, honestly. And I'm probably going to oh. be, you know, the Southern Poverty Law Center will probably have my name up there, saying, you know, uh, Ann Ubell yeah. of the Southern Sense just promoted, you know, Omar being arrested for immigration <laughs> fraud. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, but but heaven forbid that she she suggests that it's not the problem with the religion of peace, uh, Islam, that is infiltrating our nation in insidious manners, uh, but it is, it is the fact it is white men and the ultra-right wing that is causing more deaths in America than anything else. That's scary. Well, she wants to use anything she can, so she'll use white men this week. Next week it'll be white women. You know, or, or or people who have an accent that's uh, not from Africa, or whatever she's going to use. She's going to use anything she can, and she keeps changing the tune to keep the the, the press and everybody dancing. Uh, and that's where she's being very clever, because every time she opens her mouth, she comes up with a new outrage. So she's not going to be pursuing one thing day in and day out, day in and day out. She's always going to have something new and a new angle, and a new challenge, and to get more attention, and she's getting the attention she wants. Jim, yeah. I got a question for you. Go ahead, Curtis. What, I, I watched this um, fiasco on television yesterday. I think it was yesterday with Mueller. Yes, it was yesterday. Uh, yeah. I, I get the impression that he really wasn't um, totally involved with the investigation. He seemed clueless at times. What are your thoughts on that? I'm, I'm afraid that they, they picked him out to use him as a figurehead. What they did, in fact, have other people run the investigation, and it's very impar- apparent by the, the one of the things I think that he didn't even know about the uh, Fusion GPS involvement in the whole thing. He was stymied when they asked him questions about that. So unfortunately, they used him, and uh, I feel sorry for him. He's an ex-Marine. He's been used and abused, and that's that's what it appears like. So that's pretty sad. And, of course, uh, you you had uh, a couple of the Democrats really, really championing him, and they brought him out there for their dog and pony show, and the pony fell on his keister. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it, I'm laughing, but it was really, really a sad thing. You know, Fusion GPS was front page news. It was pathetic. It, but, I mean, even Time Magazine, not Time Magazine, uh, New York Times wrote about Fusion GPS at one point in time. The Washington Post wrote about it at one point in time. Uh, whether they supported it or not, I'm not going to say, but even they wrote about it and knew about Fusion GPS. So why, as the special prosecutor in this case, he was completely unaware of something as important as that? It just it begs to uh, – I'm trying to think of the correct word because I'm absolutely stunned. Well, maybe no, he's a quest of himself. What <laughs> investigation put himself into question? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I saw something uh, someplace this morning when I was going over my email real quick that uh, one of his main projects uh, when he was in the office was to make sure the timer on the microwave was working right. <laughs> you know, poor guy. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to get. Uh, uh, State, Louisiana State Senator John Milkovich back on because he wrote the book about Robert Mueller, a very, very eye-opening book. And a lot of things he wrote about were things I remember him investigating. And it seems that Mueller's uh, forte was in saying he's doing an investigation and yet doing a more of a cover-up. So I'm wondering how much, because if you notice every time there was a question asked, he always asked them to repeat it. Now you got to remember these members of Congress have a five-minute time frame in which to ask their questions. And when the buzzer rings, you're off. So I think he was delaying and preventing a lot of people from asking more questions than they really did. I don't think he was as dumb as you think. Uh, I think he was using it as a stall tactic. He knows more than he wanted to say, honestly. I don't know, Jim. What was your impression? Well, he had promised to stay within the confines of the report and the fact came out that he doesn't know much about the report. He didn't go beyond that. So he he may have just uh, gone into the play stupid and cover his backside, which could be the way it is, or he just went in there because he's, he's, a, he's been a, a patsy. And uh, the, the Democrats, the Democrats in the Congress were not as well tuned in or knowledgeable about what had been going on than they thought they did. That's why uh, Nadler and a couple of others were just so outraged and so confused with the, that they couldn't even hold a, co- a coherent press conference after the meeting was over. They had to wait a few hours to get their get their music together. You know. I mean, I've I've winced at some of the <laughs> things that went on there. The the guys, are, you know, a decorated. Combat wounded Marine who has done some fantastic things for our country, but unlike or just like some others, he has kind of lost it as, as they just stuck up on him, and well, uh, you know, that's 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 sad. Well, you were accustomed to the Washington mentality, having been around it. I'm wondering if the Washington mentality finally seeped into him. He forgot what it was his oath as a Marine and what his service as a Marine meant to the country and just fell into the Washington groupthink that we have here. I'm wondering if he got lulled through age and just passivity uh, to go with the flow rather than upholding his oath. 
that could be well be it. Yes. Uh, it's 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 a shame, especially when you see that the uh, 18 Marines that were arrested over in California, and I got to say they came out of First Mardiv, and First Mardiv's sister company is in Garden City, New York, where my husband served. He served under First Mardiv, Second Battalion, 25th Marines. My ex-husband, I should say, not current husband. Yes. Ex-husband. Well, um, which is Camp Pendleton is just a few miles from my house, yeah. and uh, you know my my son served there a few years ago with the uh, 1st Recon Battalion. And, you know, so there's a lot of wonderful Marines, but you, every time you, all the time, any service, you're going to get some bad apples. And apparently you got a team of bad apples or got, got, probably got taken in uh, on business to Tijuana. <laughs> and they got, they, you know, not young guys, not too bright. Uh, that's what the Marines want. They want guys that that'll charge into the mouth of a cannon, not think about it. And these guys uh, fell into a trap, <laughs> and they are going to suffer a very serious consequence from it. Absolutely. Now, I see some numbers in uh, the studio. If it's our next guest, Anna, please press 1. Uh, that way I can say that you are my next guest, because the phone number you're calling from is not familiar to me. Um because I'm looking for one different number, and it's coming up different. Uh, anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt. But, you know, there's also something we were talking about is about the dilution of not only just our security services, but of our military over the last couple of decades, where now they're recruiting people that in the past would have been rejected in the military service. I saw it in the NYPD. People that normally would have been rejected were being accepted. So they're lowering the standards, but what happens is you end up with a substandard Marine, soldier, sailor, uh, Coast Guard. You're ending up with a substandard person coming in. What happened to upholding the standards? Well, they have a quota. They need to get the people in. They need to get so many boots on the ground. And if they can't uh, get get the best of the best, they have to second for the, or settle for the second of the best. And this is what they're doing right now. They're doing... Pretty well, but every once in a while, you know, you can see where they slip up. You've had uh, a couple of ships have had some terrible accidents in the Pacific Ocean in the last year, and officers, there was because some officers and other people who should have been doing one thing were derelict in their duties, and people died. And this is some of the things that we have to address. And probably you have to start taking these guys out of high school that you that you put into the Navy or the Marines or the Army or the Air Force, and you have to put them through a, a year of prep school to learn what they should have learned in high school to have somewhat of an education before they can move on and start doing other things. It's a, it's a sad state of affairs, but that's the way it is. But understand that even with all those deficiencies, we, we are probably the best equipped and best trained military in the world, even though you have a couple of bad, bad apples sur- surfacing. So well, I think absolutely. we're still in pretty good shape. Well, Jim, I want to thank you for joining us. People can get you and your books. You have several books out there. Uh, at your website, which is your name, use the full name, jamesehorn.com. Jim, it's always so much fun to talk to you. I got our next guest up in the bullpen. And you know what? we got to have you on more often. You and Sam Fattis just stole the show. Well, actually, Tom Tancredo had me almost peeing in my pants. 
No worries. <laughs> Jim, Jim, God bless for the hard work you do. They can check your books out. Thank you very out. much, and God bless you, and have a good day. You too. All right, let's bring our next victim up on the bullpen here if our computer is going to cooperate. And I should have Anna Polina also calling from the Wall Symposium. Good afternoon, Anna. How are you doing down there? I'm okay. How are you doing? Oh, absolutely fine. I was saying we had Tom Tancredo on before, and he had me almost peeing in my pants here. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But tell us, what's going on down there? Who's up there? So we actually had an incredible event. They surprised us at around 11 o'clock. Don Jr. and Kimberly G. came out and really just kind of connected with on issues that, you know, why the wall is so important. What people are are forgetting is that on both sides of the border, mind you, we are on the other side of Juarez. So Juarez in itself is a very, very dangerous city in Mexico. But, you know, from their perspective, really about Don Jr.'s history, him growing up and like what his family had to go through, his, you know, own mother being an immigrant herself and, you know, connecting just real on a personal level, right? Not even just data driven, but telling these stories, hearing what's going on from the people that live down here, people that have family in Juarez and and really how this is impacting not only the people of the United States, but the people of Mexico. So it's been pretty incredible. The actual wall symposium, they actually brought out my entire team. So we had a ton of, you know, independent, conservative, Hispanic activists. And that's so important right now because what we're seeing is that, you know, what the left is doing is they're trying to say that if you are indeed anything that is not a minority, that you are racist, even though minorities share the same viewpoints as, you know, the rest of America on the whole wall, because we understand and it's directly impacting our communities, whether we are Hispanic or black. So um, it's just been really incredible to kind of see people to come coming together. But I did hear one thing. Um, that the local news media in the area didn't want to cover the event. And I thought that that was really interesting because we know that Veronica Escobar and Beth O'Rourke, that these are their congressional districts, and they didn't want to draw attention to really the trafficking aspect, the cartel activity, or any of what the law enforcement and border patrol agents had to say. So um, in, in a way to get around that, the Wall Symposium brought us out to really cover it as independent activists and journalists. And so that's what we've been doing for the last couple of days. Well, I didn't know about this until I got an email uh, from uh, – who was it I got? From Hudak uh, that sent me the information on it, and that's when I jumped on. I got a hold of you. I got a hold of you know, Tom Tancredo, and I said, whoa, no, we got to get this out because this is one of the yep. issues we do cover on the show often. And it, 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 the human trafficking is not being spoken about it yet – you just had 18 Marines arrested in Camp Pendleton Busted for, for assisting yep. in the trafficking, So, which means they, they crossed over the border and bring them yep. back illegally. And they were actually getting payment for it. But then it's like you have the human trafficking aspect. You have the actual violence that's taking place on the war side because of the, the territories, right, and fighting among the cartels over the trafficking routes into the U.S. And then in addition, you have the people that are coming here that might not necessarily be bad people. A lot of them aren't even Mexicans anymore. They're coming from Guatemala, you know, South America, really even south past Mexico. Um, But then you have the exploitation of labor, right? So there's so many correlated issues, but they won't give us a platform. I mean, I've tried so hard. And, you know, sometimes I I manage to get a good producer who's like, okay, look, I'll, you know, have you on, give you the platform to talk on this. But the mainstream media is controlled by people who have very deep pockets in the DNC. So it's really hard because they know that if this information was to get out, 
to the Hispanic American demographic, which we're doing, and we're doing it in Spanish and English, but if they're trying to suppress it so hard because they realize that people that have been maybe even generationally Democrat, once they hear this, they're like, we're not going to vote Democrat anymore. And really, this isn't even a partisan issue. Like, I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican, you should be voting for this because not only is it our national security, but it is literally a humanitarian issue affecting both sides. Yeah, it is. And we've talked about human trafficking, but what about the drugs and the sex trafficking that's coming across? Yeah. And also the importation of more MS-13. And you mentioned people coming from Guatemala, South America, but you also mm-hmm. have what we call the OTMs that are coming from India, Africa, China, China. Pakistan, yeah. uh, the Middle East, such as Yemen, Saudi Arabia. You know, here you think Saudi Arabia is a good buddy of ours, but not so. You know, we're getting people from all over the world saying the southern border is so porous, and the Democrats want free immigration and no border. They, Let's rush the border now. To them, it creates a demographic of voters for generations because when they have people that come here. Maybe their, uh, their family members have they're going to vote for the DNC because they're going to lobby on behalf of the Hispanic demographic. But what we're seeing is literally for about 20 years now this has been an issue, and they haven't chosen to fix it because they know if they fix this problem, then their grip on the Hispanic minority, just like they did to the black minority, it goes away, right? They would love to have us ingrained in the welfare programs. And I can say that, you know, myself, I had a very young single mother that was in that program. And it is not a program that I would advise anyone to or even lobby anyone to really uh, have their family involved in. You will not do better for your – or the government will never do better for you than you can do for yourself. So it's you know, all of these issues, not to mention, on top of that, it is well within the right of a nation to establish its borders. If we don't have borders, we aren't a nation. Mexico has one of the strongest immigration policies in the world. And you know what? You don't see us trying to go to Mexico – because of what they have dealing on in their own country. So this is all literally propaganda. I don't really know how to say it, but we have to put it out, the information there in a way that people can listen, because right now they see a red hat. It doesn't matter if it's an Anaheim Angels hat or a Trump hat, <laughs> people shut down. And that's how brainwashed they are. So we, my organization, Bienvenido US, we actually put that information out there in Spanish and English. And then, you know, we, we are as grassroots as it gets. We don't take donations from any other organizations. So, as far as I know, we are the largest conservative Hispanic outreach in the nation. So if people want to find more information, you can get that at bienvenido.us or on our Facebook or Instagram page. Absolutely. And i got to tell people, you know, I'm always amazed because sometimes I'll see someone that's only up on, on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, and I'll reach out to them going, all right, fine. They'll never get back to me. But I was mm-hmm. surprised that, you know, you responded right away. Matter of fact, Kurt Schlichter was another one, and, and he's off on Fox <laughs> News like every other day. Uh, but i got to admit, Anna, uh, someone at Fox News does listen to the show because a lot of times someone will be on the show, and then two weeks later they're up on Fox News. So don't be surprised. Well, I, <laughs> I would hope. I would hope. And if not, you know, it just we need people that are still true journalists, true producers, and that have their heart in the right place to give, like, unbiased media. We need you guys, and I, you know, you never know, and that's why I take any media that I can get. Like, I don't care how big or small the podcast is. I don't care if it's a Facebook stream, because you just, you never know whose mind you're going to change and what impact that that can have in the world, but we need this right now, because it, it's really hurting people. There is one aspect of our organization that works directly with DACA recipients that are conservative that support the president, but it's like, you look at these kids, like, I'm not supportive of the DACA program. I think it incentivizes people to come here legally. I want it to end. 
But then you have this aspect of these kids who have been here for, like, 20 years. Like, they're, you know, people's parents, yeah, they broke the law. They shouldn't have done it. But these kids have been here for 20 years. Some of them don't even speak Spanish. So it's like, what do you do with these kids? And what's crazy is, like, now even these asylum seekers now, they can actually still get their kids to claim asylum status. So, like, we have to end that program. We have to fix the immigration loophole systems because it encourages people. You know, a third of kids that are coming here are not biologically related. They're, they're literally renting kids at the border. So it's like all of these correlated issues, like we understand from the Hispanic perspective, but we also have great pride in this country and really, you know, securing our borders from the aspect. So I think that, you know, organizations like this are very um, – they're very special in, re in regards to like the negotiation process. We just kind of need that little boost of um, media on it so that people will listen. Yeah, you, know, you mentioned the DACA program, and it's very funny because I'm entering my 10th year doing this show. I can't believe I've been doing this so long. Congratulations. But Lindsey Graham, <laughs> Graham happens to be my state senator. My, my wow. senator, I should say, not state, my senator. Um, and I've actually gone toe to toe, -to -toe literally stood there toe to toe, nose to nose with him and challenged him. So I'm not afraid to, you know, to, to do what I need to do. Yeah. But when he first became our senator, he was appointed at that point, um, there was someone who, before they used the term DACA, was that very same person. She graduated high school. She went to get a job and apply for a college. And she found out at that point that her birth certificate said she was born in Mexico. And mm -hmm. she didn't know what to do because now she realized she's an illegal immigrant, although she doesn't speak Spanish. She knew no one in she's Mexico. She's fully assimilated, right? Yep. Absolutely. So she contacted, reached out to Senator Graham, and he worked out a deal where that she did find a relative in Mexico that was willing to let her stay there. She went back home for a short period of time, applied for legal immigration, came back, attended college, graduated, is a citizen today. So there is a yep. legal way to handle these DACA kids. But I will take it even a step further because Obama said, I believe it's up to the age of 34, you're considered a DACA child. I say Obama just – I'm yeah, so sorry I get so hot on this. He's, he, is so, he was so detrimental this, to this entire process, and it's crazy because he deported over 3 million people. He literally had kids in cages. And then you have people like J-Lo, you have CNN saying that it's Trump. It's not Trump. In fact, Trump signed the executive order to merge families back together, which I will always 100% say that we need to continue separating family members because, honestly, we don't even know if they're biologically related. So until that test comes back, separate them because it protects children, right? But aside Absolutely. from that, President Obama didn't do anything for, I don't think, America. He didn't do it for the black community. He didn't do it for the Hispanic community. And now it's like we have this problem, and you have a D administration that's literally put DACA on the table three times. And I can tell you, I've read through those bills, okay, and they're not exactly the you know, most fun reading material, but I read through them, and they were trying to solve this problem. They were trying to work for it with uh, biometric visa renewal systems, and each time it was shot down by the DNC. So in my opinion, I cannot, you know, lobby for an organization, a party that's not in the best interest of what I think needs to fix the country. And that would be, you know, I obviously am conservative. I'm obviously a Republican, but it's for that reason. Absolutely. And someone mentions that if you enter before your 16th birthday, you're eligible for DACA, which is true. But as of 16 years old, in a vast majority of states here in the United States, 16 is an emancipated adult. And yep. in most countries, which like Mexico, you're 13. You're an emancipated adult at that point. And yep. I will take it even further where I was starting to say is that DACA 
went so far where he had up to the age of 34. To me, where this young lady figured out at the age of 18 she was here illegally, Mm -hmm. if you haven't figured that out and you're 34 years old and you still don't know, there's something wrong with this picture. By the time you're 20, you should know. Yeah, if you're (laughs) even applying for a job, but it's like, you know, I met Senator Lindsey Graham when uh, Bienvenido actually went to the Capitol, and he, you know, took time out of his day. He's like, you know what, you guys are organizations. He's like, I hope that you guys continue to do what you're doing because you guys are really the future of this nation. And he's right. It's independent thinkers coming together to fight for a common good, common cause being the Constitution of the United States of America, regardless of our skin tone and, and the countries that our families were born from, right? So I, I just hope that, you know, we can continue to work together. This, this organization um, independently funded the wall, right, the wall of thon That's incredible. This was literally a solution that government could not fix, that private citizens came together on private land to build in one of the most dangerous sectors, really in the United States um, in regards to the immigration areas and, and the crossings, and they did it, and they completed it in a week. So <laughs> if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. <laughs> yeah, we, we've had a couple of people from We Build the Wall uh, US on the show, and like I said, Tom Tancredo was on here earlier. Did you get mm-hmm. to meet him yet? I have not, and in fact, it was it was so crazy after uh, Don Jr. spoke that and it, it actually just hit 100, so I know a couple of people actually ended up in the ER getting uh, IVs because it's been so hot. But um, <laughs> I'm definitely going to be out there, and I'll be speaking tomorrow, so hopefully I can catch him then. Well, then give him a shout-out, because if you're speaking tomorrow, I think he's also speaking tomorrow, saying, hey, Tom, Annie said hi. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely will. I definitely will. You, know, you do such fantastic work, and when I was reading about Ben Benito, I was saying, "All right, fine. What is this? What are we getting into?" Because you do have it, Dan, as apolitical. But as I was reading it, you did it in such a manner that it was so unifying, and I, and I, I mm-hmm. thought it was so great. And the great thing about it is, you say you don't have to be Latino to join; you can be anyone, because the United Correct. States of America is a melting pot. It yep, is not a multicultural nation. And- yes. <laughs> That and that the way we frame that is so in Spanish, bienvenido means welcome, and the reason why we did that is because we realized, you know, as 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 much as it's hilarious to watch videos of like people being triggered, um, at the end of the day, like these people are being triggered because they're receiving misinformation and they're still American citizens. So like I was alive during 9/11. I'm United States Air, Air Force veteran. So where I come at this is that like what can I do? to really change how people think and to learn to really talk to one another again. And so when I, you know, met with Abraham, who's our, our founder and, you know, the RNHA and really some people kind of talking to them to figure about how, you know, the messaging was lost in translation with the Hispanic demographic, um, we figured it was key in like how we presented it. And that is genuinely every single person in that organization, that is what we believe. And so because of that, we've actually had a lot of people that you wouldn't typically expect. You know, they will say, had it not been for your messaging, I probably wouldn't have listened. But because you guys are respectful about it, like we, we gave it a chance and it changed our minds. So that's basically kind of been a blessing because it's helping, helping the nation. Well, I, I kind of like equate you to the Latino version of Brandon Strucker's Walk Away. Yeah, he yeah, hit a nerve. Yeah. <laughs> he hit a nerve, and you're doing the same thing. You're hitting that nerve where people in their hearts know something's wrong, and maybe yeah. they can't exactly put their finger on it. But when you give a voice to it, and you can actually put the words out there that people can start to understand, it changes people's not just the minds; it changes their hearts. And you need the mm-hmm. mind to change. You need the heart to change first. Yeah, we all tell our stories. We. 
we are, you know, we don't pretend to be something that we're not. Some of us come from all different ranges of, you know, socioeconomic class and whatnot. We aren't afraid of owning, like, our roots and kind of telling the stories as to why we believe, you know, for example, the welfare system is not in the best interest of any community, especially the Hispanic community or, you know, those of us that have stories of immigration. I mean, we share all those things, and that's really been um, key in, in this movement, and it's crazy because, when I kind of stood up, I realized at that time, point in time, and like now, I am the biggest voice for the conservative Hispanic outreach in the nation. And I never thought that even just by me like standing up for like my values that I would take that role. But because I have, you know, I remember, you know, it's not just one person's fight. It's not just about like being the star of the show. You need to in, it really help everyone stand up because if we lose this nation, I mean, what's the point of having, you know, 1.2 million followers on Instagram if, like, we're in a socialist country, no one's winning, you know? So that's that's something that we all work together. We have, really do have this family and culture, I guess, tied to that aspect. But um, it's been an incredible process, and, you know, you have met some really great people on the, on the way who I know will be my friends for the rest of my life. Oh, great. Uh, I'm looking at the clock. I mean, this this show has gone so fast, Curtis. We're down to like eight and a half minutes. Uh, I mean, I had all these questions to ask you, and Anna, I'm going to have to get you on for more than just a few minutes and give you a larger segment. I mean, you've got my number. You know, call me. Say, Anna, i got this going on. Let's get this moving. (laughs) I'm telling you, I've I've got slots wide open all next month, so let's talk. Uh, Curtis, we've got a few minutes. (laughs) Curtis, we've got a few minutes. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Got one yeah, last question. Anna, I just want to know what the true pulse is on um the Hispanic community that that that's here in America that came through the, you know, legal channels to become a citizen. How do they feel about the illegal? They're angry. You know? angry, frustrated. I actually just met a kid today who has family in Juarez and they're waiting on their visa paperwork and they waited it over a year. And it's not fair because a lot of these people are trying to do it the right way, you know, and they're in areas that aren't exactly safe, but they understand what happens when they do it the wrong way. And so it's for us, the way that we look at it, it's like, why are these people being given preference over people that would be willing to come here the right way? And I can say this, you know, I've had family members that came here legally and my own grandmother came here the right way, but her, her brothers did not. And so to hear what their opinions are and why they hate this president. It's like, but you guys broke the law. You guys willingly did something to benefit yourself and it's selfish. And so it's, you know, it's unfortunate, but there is definitely a strong sense of pride. But again, it's the way that we message it, right? If we're just saying, you know, deport all illegals, all illegals are bad. People aren't going to listen to us, but we, you know, we lay it out. We put the information breadcrumbs in in the way that people can perceive it and understand it. And um, we do it in Spanish and English, which is very important. And people listen. And collectively, you know, at this part of the border, it's a very, very, very far-leaning left, right? And there are people – I was talking to a heavyweight boxer that's actually here, El Nino, right? And he was telling me that his house has been vandalized, that people are giving him death threats, like the cartels are threatening him, because he's conservative and he's saying, hey, look, I do support this structure here because look at all these bad things happening, But it's like as the community has been more divided, especially with the media, people are forgetting that we are inherently conservative. Like, you know, fall back onto your face, fall back into the values that your family instilled in you. So it is interesting. I know it's kind of a long-winded answer, but part of what we do is we actually bring back the cultural aspects of, you know, where we're from. So, like, when we host events, we actually will bring out mariachis and, you know, just to make people (laughs) feel more at home. And then so they listen, but it works. It totally works. So that's what we're doing. (laughs) Well, like I said, 
you can't change the mind unless you change the heart. Anna, it has been such a pleasure having on you. And like I said, we'll talk, uh, and we'll get you back on and definitely do a much larger segment on that. But about when Benuto and We Build the Wall. US and Turning Point USA and all the things that you do work with, you, you're out there tirelessly. And thank you for your service. And you mentioned yeah, the nine eleven. 9-11. I did lose some fellow officers on 9-11. I had already been retired by then. I mean, it. I was there the first time the towers were Do you uh, remember struck it? In, you remember in, it? Well, I was on duty in 1993 when they were struck the first wow. time in February, and my sister-in-law was in the buildings, in the Twin Towers at the time it happened. Uh, so, yeah, I, that is very dear to my heart, and anyone that wants to say it was a hoax, and I'm, I'm telling them, you can kiss my ever-loving big you-know-what. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, thank you so much for having me on. It has been a pleasure, and God bless you for the hard work you do, ma'am. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. Take care. All right. Anna Polina, check out her website. It is buenvenuto.us. There is a link up on the show page. If you're listening to the podcast, especially if you're in the archives, just click down to her name, and it's there, buenvenuto, B-I-E-N-V-E-N-I-D-O.us. I mean, we've had great guests, Curtis. I mean, I'm looking down the clock. We're in our last four minutes, and the show has just absolutely flown. I mean, it is absolutely amazing. I uh, had so much fun today despite all of the uh, technical difficulties we had. Yeah, the technical things, but, hey, it was a great show. Absolutely. So we will now, be back next Friday. Uh, we've got a new guest, uh, Casey. Oh, good Lord, I just forgot the person's last name. Has a new book out about uh, Richard Nixon, um, about what happened to him after Watergate in his resignation. It's a, I, I started picking up the book. It is a great read. Uh, we're also going to have another um, – a uh, guest, uh, oh, good Lord, uh, it, it's about the Soviet Union, and I'm having major brain farts, but he's going to be later on in August. Uh, so we've got great people mm-hmm. lined up, and we will be back here next Friday, Curtis. Same bad time, same bad station. Same time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> until then, I'll leave you with our closing song, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. I want to thank everyone that participated in the studio, those that tried to listen in. I'm sorry, Facebook is the one that has been blocking the sound. I found out because we are getting sound over an SHR and Blog Talk Radio. I don't know what they're doing. I guess I'm being <laughs> censored. So I leave you with our closing song, When the Roll is Called Up Yana. Until then, I say good night and God bless. Uh, come on. Here we go. Play. And I'm not getting any sound. Do you hear anything, Curtis? Nothing, and I can't. I can't write anything in the chat room. It's like it's frozen. Huh. All right. Well, then we're just gonna have to leave the show with that. Um, I guess uh, we're just gonna close the show off a few minutes early. I don't know what is going on because my soundboard is showing that it's come. Oh, you know what? Skype has got me knocked off. So that is probably why I'm okay. trying to play the music from the other. Here we go. Here we go. Until then, folks. Good night. God bless. <laughs> All right.